I was eating basically 100% organic paleo, and I thought, there's still something about this diet that is triggering my immune system. When I first heard of a carnivore diet, I sort of bristled at the thought, and that's crazy, you can't do that. We're putting kilogram quantities of food in our bodies. Those are all molecular signals to our immune system. The small amount that does get absorbed usually acts as a pro-oxidant. Many people have alpha diversity that increases on a carnivore diet. From an evolutionary perspective, the carnivore diet is the closest thing to our most basic programming. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Hi guys, welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I don't know about you, but I am having the time of my life (laughs) recording these interviews and bringing them to you guys. Today's episode is with Dr. Paul Saladino, and we go into one of my, I would say recent obsessions, but I've actually been obsessed with the concept of an all-meat diet for over a decade. I don't personally follow a carnivore diet at the moment. But I have definitely experimented with a lot. I've been researching the concept of it for years, years and years. Ever since I realized that meat has very little things to spark immune responses or digestive issues, and I was just fascinated by the concept. I'm pretty thrilled that so many people are finding benefits from it today. So in today's episode, we go into all the nitty gritty details with Paul, who is an MD and who knows his stuff. So I think you'll learn a lot in this episode. And yes, I do want to try another carnivore diet experiment myself. So we shall see. (laughs) So the show notes for today's episode, they will be at ifpodcast.com slash carnivore. You can go there for all of the notes. You're definitely going to want to check it out because we discuss a lot of things in this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, it would mean the absolute world. You have no idea. (laughs) If you could write a brief iTunes review of the episode in iTunes, please do know that I do read them and they mean the world. Also, I am thrilled to be part of the Himalaya network. And if you download the Himalaya app, it is absolutely amazing. It lets you follow all of your podcasts, keep them all in one place, make personal playlists. It's just absolutely wonderful. And better yet, if you follow my show in the Himalaya app, you will get early access 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. And while I'm most excited, obviously, about the conversation with Dr. Paul Saladino in this episode, The runner-up for my excitement is what I can offer you guys when it comes to actually finding high-quality meat for your carnivore diet, or if you're not carnivore, then perhaps your meat-inclusive diet. So as you know, I am a huge, huge proponent of consuming meat and seafood in the healthiest form possible, and unfortunately that's pretty hard today with all of the conventional raising methods, with our polluted waters, but I am about to tell you how you can get free 100% grass-fed ground beef for life. I know, I'm, I'm so excited. I just got the confirmation yesterday, and all night I was just thinking about how I was going to record this. But in any case, I did a lot of research because I think it's so important that we have access to affordable, high-quality animal products which support our health and the environment, and that is not an easy goal to achieve. Even at the grocery store, for example, I'll often look at the meats which proclaim to be organic or grass-fed, but you don't know what farms are coming from. You don't know what practices they're using. It's just 
there's not much clarity and I've never actually been able to find a source that I felt really good about. So shy of going to an actual farmer's market or engaging with local farmers, which obviously would probably be the ideal, what's a carnivore lover to do? Well, thankfully I found ButcherBox and they lived up to everything I could ever hope for. So what ButcherBox does is they are an online delivery service. They ship fantastic meat straight to your door on dry ice at amazing prices so they can really take the hassle out of supporting your carnivore diet. So let me tell you a little bit about them. So all of their animals are humanely raised, no antibiotics, no added hormones. So for their beef, it is grass-fed and grass-finished. That's huge because often meat will be marketed as grass-fed, but it's often not grass-finished, which means that basically the cows are allowed to roam on pasture to be quote, grass-fed, but then at the end, they're actually fattened up pretty quickly with grains to get them ready for market, and that is no bueno. But with ButcherBox, 100% grass-fed, 100% grass-finished. They are so passionate about making sure that these animals come from farms where they are treated well, where they're not stressed, where they're provided their access to the outdoors. Speaking of stress, that actually makes a huge difference in not only meat quality, so how it's going to taste to you, but how it affects you on a biological level. I did a lot of research on the science of it. Stressed animals, those stress hormones can actually end up being dispersed in them, which then result in you. The stress from the animals also affects the structure of the proteins themselves in the meat. So it can make the meat harder to digest, more inflammatory. You really want to be getting high quality meat from non-stressed animals raised in humane practices. They have pork as well. And what they have which I'm so excited about is heritage breed pork. It is really hard to find heritage breed pork. Most pork today has been genetically bred to make it easier to fatten up and less healthy in the process. ButcherBox has heritage breed. It's going to be richer in micronutrients, particularly fat-soluble vitamins like E and D, minerals like selenium. And pigs, sort of like humans, actually make vitamin D in their skin and in their fat when they're exposed to sunlight. So you want to get pigs with access to the outdoors, which ButcherBox offers as well. When it comes to their bacon, wait for it, nitrate-free and sugar-free. How hard is that to find? And then for their chicken, completely organic, outdoor access, and something I'm even more excited about, and I promise I'll stop saying excited, but I'm just so excited, is they are beginning to implement production processes across the board, which actually further minimize stress in the animals. And actually, when it comes to those processing practices, I had previously been purchasing a very specific brand of poultry purely because they were using those certain methods to minimize the stress in the animals. But now I'm so happy that I can get it from ButcherBox at an even better price and with even more confidence in the raising methods. So I am so grateful to ButcherBox for supporting these practices, making them available to the public at large and at very affordable prices. The way it works is you order basically a box. You can get a mixed box. You can get a custom box. You can really choose what works for you. And like I said, it will arrive on dry ice, sealed, so you can keep it in your freezer and you will be good to go, you know, for a month. Although since this is an episode about the carnivore diet, it might last a little bit less than that. <laughs> but in any case, ButcherBox is the way to go. If you sign up at butcherbox.com slash Melanie Avalon and or use the code Melanie20, not only do you get $20 off, which I mean, that alone is pretty awesome. But like I said, you get two pounds of grass-fed ground beef for life. Like, how awesome is that? So basically every box from here on out, you're going to get two free pounds of their grass-fed, grass-finished, high-quality, health-supporting, carnivore-diet-perfect ground beef. 
I'm just smiling so much right now. So definitely check out that link. And I will of course put all this information in the show notes. So again, that link is butcherbox.com slash Melanie Avalon using the code Melanie20. Ground beef for life, $20 off. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100 or do because I mean, collecting $100 would be nice. One other thing about the carnivore diet is today we often don't eat nose to tail. I mean, I know I don't, (laughs) maybe you do, but I don't. And it can be important to get those nutrients that we would be getting if we were eating nose to tail. So nutrients and things like the thymus, the kidney, the brain, these are full of nutrients that are so supportive of health. And even if you're not carnivore, you could likely see amazing health improvements and benefits from the nutrients found in these different glands and organs that might not appeal to you on a taste perspective. So what to do? Welcome ancestral supplements. They make freeze-dried supplements from grass-fed animals, pure quality. You're just getting the actual glands, no additives, no fillers. Guys, this is the route to go if you really want to experience the health benefits you can get from these various organs. They've got brain, they've got kidney, thyroid, liver, so many things. You should check out their Amazon reviews. They're amazing. Their customer support is amazing. I cannot recommend them enough. And they're offering you an amazing 15% discount, which I am so grateful for. Just use the link in the show notes and use the code IFAST for 15% off. All right, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode all on the carnivore diet. Hi, everybody. So I am so excited about the guest that we have on today's show. We have Dr. Paul Saladino. Paul, when I first decided to start this show, I made a list of all of the guests that I wanted to bring on, and I immediately wrote your name at the top of the list. So I am so excited about this moment because I've been obsessed with the carnivore diet and the concept of it actually before it was even a thing. Like I've been thinking about the carnivore diet for maybe 10 years. I I kind of experimented with something similar about 10 years ago. But before I get into all of the rabbit holes and tangents, first of all, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing so good. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's so flattering to hear that I was at the top of your list. Hopefully I can deliver. No, you are because you've been making, it's like you've been making the, the rounds on all the podcasts and I've been listening to your interviews and I was like, yes, finally somebody who is really discussing the carnivore diet from a very scientific medical perspective and you have that background. Um, So for listeners, Dr. Saladino, he studied chemistry at the College of William and Mary, and then you spent like six years traveling and exploring. So you're very nuanced and you have seen the world. (laughs) He became a physician assistant and practiced in cardiology and then got his MD from the University of Arizona. And you're also a fortified functional medicine practitioner and word on the street is you are completing your residency in psychiatry right now at the University of Washington. Is that, are you almost done with that right now? I'm pretty much done. Yeah, I finish in like a week from when we record this. So it's a four-year residency after four years of medical school. And yeah, I'm basically done with residency now. So done with that and moving on to bigger and better things. Well, congratulations. You have, Thank you. You have quite the resume going on. Well, it was a fun time. I mean, I I didn't have a traditional path. It's been it's been, you know, a little bit of circumlocution in some ways, you know. It's been it's been a wandering, meandering, fun path. And, you know, I got to spend six years traveling in the world and skiing in the backcountry and exploring, 
you know, New Zealand and all these places. And perhaps that's where curiosity grows from or my sort of, you know, incorrigible nature or my inability to follow rules. I don't know, but I like to question things and it's been a fun journey so far. I have to ask when you were in New Zealand, did you ever go to the, like where they filmed Lord of the Rings and things like that? Well, I mean, I was there before they filmed Lord of the Rings. I was there in 2000. And um, I I think I was in a lot of those locations. I basically went everywhere uh, in New Zealand. So many places, uh, the North Island and the South Island. It was before I was planning to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. So after I got back from New Zealand, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, which is a contiguous wilderness trail that goes from Mexico to Canada through the wilderness mountains of California, Oregon, and Washington. And in preparation for that, I spent uh, like four months just traveling and hiking all the backcountry trails that I could find in New Zealand. So I probably did go to a lot of the places where they filmed Lord of the Rings. It had yet to be, you know, crowned as the Lord of the Rings sort of set at the time, but it was pretty majestic. That is amazing. That's on my bucket list. I love those movies and it just looks so, so beautiful. Oh, you should definitely go. It's it's an amazing spot and it's pretty safe and the backcountry is amazing. Maybe I'll go as a, a carnivore. <laughs> you should. I, they have no shortage. They have no shortage of amazing pasture-raised animals there. All right. Well, we'd like to tell listeners a little bit about more about your medical background and how you began experimenting with the carnivore diet or what led you to where you are today before we get into the science of it. Yeah. So, you know, my dad's a physician. I think I grew up steeped in medicine and I grew up thinking about health and wellness. I remember asking my dad when I was 12 years old, what causes atherosclerosis? I don't know if I knew that word then, but in my mind, that's the way I remember it. You know, I remember myself as a precocious 12 year old asking what causes atherosclerosis. And he said, nobody knows. And, you know, atherosclerosis is the process of sort of plaque formation, fatty streak formation inside an artery wall. And for whatever reason, that, that illness, that, you know, um, that pathology held me fascinated when I was a kid and I wanted to understand what was causing that. And he said, no one knows. And I thought, well, that's not, that can't be true. Like I'm going to figure that out. I'm going to think a lot about what causes atherosclerosis. Mm -hmm. And throughout my career, you know, in, medicine, basically from the time that I finished my, like my vagabond days of gallivanting and skiing in the backcountry and hiking mountains, uh, you know, when I started PA school, I was sort of always interested in what caused things. What was at the root of something? When you start medicine, it's very overwhelming and you're sort of flooded with this fire hose of information about human physiology and medications and how to treat things and how to, how to address illness. But the most interesting answers to me were always what caused something? Why were people getting sick in the first place? That was what I always wanted to know. And so throughout my training, I've been trying to kind of wrestle with that in my own way and understand that. And the beginning part of my training, I was met with a lot of disappointment because sadly, Western medicine doesn't like to ask those questions and doesn't like to really explore that very much. And what we do mostly in Western medicine not out of desire, not out of a lack of desire to help people, but mostly out of a uh, just a paradigm that's learned, is just we we treat symptoms with medications and we never really are able to address the root cause. And so, as I was working as a PA, I quickly realized that it wasn't going to be a satisfying career for me, 
And I really wanted to understand these root causes of illness. And I was in cardiology. I enjoyed working with people with hypertension or cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis in my 12-year-old foreshadowing. And I, I realized at that time that what was interesting to me most was probably functional medicine, which is this school of thought that looks at the root cause and starts to use different tests to look at things that might be causing these illnesses in different ways and starts to look at things, medical illness with a different lens than mainstream Western medicine traditionally has. And so I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona and all through the process, I was trying to understand like, what is causing these things? What is really behind this? And the major answer that I continued to think of was food. Um, it was the diet, that it was mostly lifestyle. Not everything is related to that, but most things I think are related to lifestyle, whether it's the food we place in our bodies or the way that we live our lives, an absence of sunlight, an absence of community, overly stressed. So, But the biggest factor that was interesting to me, the most malleable factor was food. You know, We can take milligram quantities of medications and affect people in profound ways physiologically. And yet we put kilogram quantities of food in our bodies. These are multiple orders of magnitude different. So we're putting kilogram quantities of food in our bodies, and those are all molecular signals to our immune system. And so pretty early on in medical school, I thought, oh yeah, food is what's causing this. And so then you sort of become obsessed, or at least I did, like what what is the food? How are humans meant to eat? I think that's the most interesting question. How do people eat? to achieve optimal health? How do, we, how do we really understand what it is that humans need to function optimally? And then the corollary question is, is that the same for every individual? Is there one diet that we're sort of all programmed to do optimally on that has sort of modifications or, you know, things that can be added to it? Or is everyone very individual? You know, is one person a vegetarian, another person you know, a paleo person, what, how does it all work? You know, what are the genetics behind this and what makes us ideal? But I think that that's a really fascinating concept to me because, you know, when you go to the gas station, you see a pump of gas and it's like regular plus and premium. But in a way, you know, if you think about what happens with humans, the food that we put in our bodies actually determines the car that we get to drive. Our experience of life is so intimately tied to the concordance between our genetics and our environment and between our genetics and the way that our body functions and the food that we're putting in. And so it's like, it's as if you go up to the gas station and you're sort of in a transformer, you're in a car that's different depending on what type of gas. And instead of saying plus or regular plus and premium, it says like Honda Civic, Toyota Prius, Lamborghini, and Porsche. And you can say, well, I want to drive a Porsche today. So I'm going to eat, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to eat the best food for me. And that's going to transform your experience of life. So you know, that, that to me was this fascinating concept. And so I wanted to know what was the Porsche gasoline? Like what was the ultimate thing that humans could eat or that I could eat? And how does it translate to other people? So that's been the, the thing that's been driving me is what do humans need to eat to make themselves optimal? And for a, a while I experimented with paleolithic diets, this idea of evolutionary congruence between a quote unquote paleolithic diet and humans seemed reasonable to me. It seemed more reasonable than eating a bunch of grains and beans and I thought, well, that's pretty cool. But, you know, I kind of had this like eczema that was my personal, you know, thing for a while. And in medical school, it got so bad when I was doing a lot of jujitsu that it got super infected and I had impetigo and I was eating basically a hundred percent organic paleo. And I thought there is still something that is wrong with this picture. There's still something about this diet 
that is triggering my immune system, even though I thought this is the best thing I can imagine. You know, I'm not cheating on this diet. I'm being very strict because I'm interested in this concept. And it wasn't really until I got most of the way through residency about a year ago that I was exposed to the idea of a carnivorous diet. And because I'd been so steeped in these functional medicine ideals of plants as beneficial and fiber as necessary for the human microbiome and multiple varieties of plant foods being beneficial for microbial, microbial, microbial diversity in the gut, that that when I first heard of a carnivore diet, I sort of bristled at the thought and thought, that's crazy. You can't do that. You cannot just eat animals. And then I started to look into it and it was so neat the way that my my preconceived notions kind of fell away. And it's just been this gradual process of sort of discovery thinking, wow, so many of these things that we've been told are canon, that we've been told are dogma about food and especially about plants and their benefits for humans may not actually be true. And along the way, I was discovering and learning about hundreds and hundreds of case studies or anecdotes of people who are having recovery from previously incurable diseases, diseases that you learn about or that I learned about in medical school that one might learn about in medical school as idiopathic. You know, you can't fix it. We don't know what causes it. Things like psoriasis, eczema, like I had, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Sjogren's, fibromyalgia, you know, aplastic anemias, interstitial cystitis. I mean, basically the, the menagerie of autoimmune diseases, you would see people getting better with this diet. And I thought, well, that's incredible. Like, how is that going to happen? And, and what is going on there? And so that just really piqued my interest. And I dove in and it's just been this incredible journey over the last year, exploring mechanisms, you know, molecular mechanisms, molecular toxins that may be in plants that may be triggering the immune system. And then, you know, conversely learning about the ways that meat is not toxic and like we've been told it is for so long and learning about ways in which meat is not associated with cancer or meat won't cause heart disease or meat isn't all of these things that it's been vilified. And then there's all these other interesting corollary discussions about lipids. And so what's so interesting about this topic, and I think that you share this enthusiasm, is that it just challenges basically every single long-held belief in our nutritional system. And that is a really interesting thing because if nothing else, it raises these really fascinating conversations about what these ideas are based on and whether we should continue to espouse them or whether we should look to examine them further and, you know, accept the fact or the notion or consider the hypothesis that perhaps plants are not all they're cracked up to be. I'm so happy to hear all of that because it sounds like we come from a very similar approach to everything. I, I feel like we would have gotten along really well as children. When I was in kindergarten, I distinctly remember thinking I had a headache and I, like my mom gave me an Advil or something. And I remember thinking, how can this one pill fix any Thing. Like I didn't, I was like, it doesn't make sense that this one pill can fix a headache or can fix if I hurt my finger or can fix anything else. And so even at that time, I understood there was like a holistic perspective. And it's because Advil or ibuprofen or these NSAIDs are downregulating inflammation. So that's why they're addressing basically anything. But I think if I had thought about that more, <laughs> I probably would have realized, um, had similar epiphanies about how we're not addressing the root cause of anything. And there must be something going on that is creating this inflammation in the first place. 
And well, that is really the question I think of, of medicine today. I mean, you've hit on it right there. Like most of the diseases we treat that are chronic diseases are inflammatory diseases. Autoimmunity is essentially synonymous with chronic inflammation. And so if we can understand what's causing inflammation, if we can understand what's causing overactivation or in incorrect activation of the immune system, we are we are to the root of many issues. That as well, you were talking about, you know, is there one right diet for everybody? And I've had the same similar obsession as well. And I don't like to ever have a conclusion about anything, but some of my personal thoughts right now, because I literally think about this all the time, is that it probably is individual and it probably is the diet that supports a non-inflammatory state. And then that that would be based on the genetics, but more importantly, epigenetics, environment, gut microbiome and everything. But in Beyond all of that, you know, what is the perfect diet? And we can talk more about that. We do see, you know, that the carnivore diet, to define it for listeners, is a, a diet based exclusively on animal products. We see for so many people that they just completely reverse all of these autoimmune conditions and things that they didn't even realize were related to diet seem to go away. So my own personal experience with it is back in college. I first realized that there was a connection between food and autoimmunity and health when I went low carb and cut out, it was because I cut cut out, I think like processed foods and things like that. And then I adopted intermittent fasting and saw a lot of changes, but I actually went through a period of about six months where I just ate rotisserie chickens with coconut oil (laughs) in an intermittent fasting pattern because they marked down the rotisserie chickens at like 11 o'clock every night and I had night classes. They marked them down to like $3, and I realized I could go at 11 p.m., get a $3 chicken, slather it in coconut oil. I cut out all the plants, and I felt amazing. So it wasn't exactly carnivore, but it had the coconut oil aspect. But since then, I went through a, you know, a lot of experimentation. I adopted paleo. That even further clarified the connection between you know, reactions to foods. Then developed a lot of IBS type issues though, which I think a lot of people see resolve on carnivore diets. But now I'm like at this place where I'm I'm fascinated by carnivore diet, but then I felt like I saw benefits when I brought back some plants. Basically, I'm totally open to the idea. I want to hear more about it. I want to hear about the science about it. Um, but I have a lot of questions for you because I've had so many questions that haunt me about this diet, especially given my obsession like you with the perfect diet and longevity. So I have a lot of questions for you. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing. I think most people will probably have a reaction like mine when they hear about it. And, you know, I'll just clarify that what we're, what we're talking about with a carnivore diet is you could also call it whole foods, animal based. Um, but it's from my perspective, it's best done eating animals nose to tail. So you could also call it a nose to tail carnivore diet. And just so people understand, it's it's not just eating the muscle meat of the animal. That's what we're traditionally to think of when we're eating animals. We think of steaks and chicken breasts and salmon fillets. But if we kind of take a step back in our evolution or we look at indigenous peoples, they eat the whole animal. And many of these things that they eat are considered to be a little bit gross by our standards, but they have very unique nutritional benefits. And what I'm thinking of when I think of a nose to tail carnivore diet is really eating all the parts of the animal. So eating the muscle meat, but also eating fat from the animal. I mean, when we get the muscle meat from the animal, we're discarding 
many of these animals have huge amounts of back fat and kidney fat. So we have to think about the fat to protein macro ratios. We can talk about all that stuff, but we're also not thinking about the organs and the organs are uniquely valuable. We know there are micronutrients that are in the muscles and sort of a complementary set of micronutrients that are in the organs, especially liver. So I believe that any nose to tail carnivore diet really should include liver. And then once you include liver, the nutritional profile starts to look a lot more complete. It gets even better if you include things like bone marrow or connective tissue. We probably need some source of high omega-3 fat, whether it's bone marrow or brain or seafood and a source of iodine, which is usually going to be in seafood. But once we start to eat the whole animal in the ways that we can as westernized humans, the nutritional profile becomes much more complete, but it can include things like eggs and seafood and shellfish and chicken and, you know, humanely raised pork and a lot of ruminants. But that's what we're talking about with a a carnivore diet. Yeah, I know nutritionally, a lot of people, their immediate response is that you're not getting everything that you need on a carnivore diet, because if you're just eating meat. Um, I personally, especially just hearing what you said, and like the research that I've done can see how it's very nutritional, it satisfies, I mean, I would say almost everything, especially if you're eating nose to tail. I know a lot of people say you need vitamin C, but then there's the argument that you need less vitamin C if you are not taking in the carbohydrates that are competing with the absorption. Yeah. I mean, the vitamin C question is the one that most people think of, but if you look at an animal, there's a decent amount or a moderate amount of vitamin C in muscle meat, depending how much you cook the muscle meat and whether you overcook it or, you know, how you like your steaks. But there's there's a very robust amount of vitamin C in things like pancreas, spleen, and liver. And most people will just be like, well, screw that. I'm not eating pancreas or spleen. Or, but liver is pretty approachable for most people. And there's a really good amount of vitamin C in liver. So notably, there's never been a documented case of scurvy in the carnivore community. And there are tens of thousands of people there. There are some pretty amazing studies about vitamin C and scurvy from the 1940s. Actually, they took conscientious objectors to World War II and they actually gave them scurvy. And um, they did that by depriving them of any vitamin C. They didn't give them any fresh meat and nothing. And it took six to eight months to develop. And then what they found was that the people with the scurvy, they were able to reverse it with 10 milligrams of vitamin C a day. And that's that was the lowest dose they gave these people. So potentially you could reverse scurvy with even less than that. And then the question becomes, you know, is, is more than 10 milligrams of vitamin C actually beneficial to humans? And I think that the evidence for that is really much more meager than people are led to believe. We're led to believe that vitamin C is this panacea when I would argue that, in fact, I think excess vitamin C is quite harmful to humans. It's known that excess vitamin C can turn into oxalate in the human body and increase oxalate excretion, potentially leading to oxalate either kidney stones or oxalate deposition in joints. And we can see modeled in people who have glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency that excess doses of vitamin C actually turn into pro-oxidants. So we're told vitamin C is an antioxidant, and at some basic level, we do use it for that. But I think that the it's not entirely clear at what, what doses vitamin C becomes less valuable for humans. And so the idea that we need 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C is far, far, you know, 
outside of what we actually physiologically need. And to obtain a thousand milligrams of vitamin C a day without supplementation is basically impossible. You'd have to eat like 10 oranges a day. And I can tell you that would create GI distress for any human being. And people will also notice that high doses of vitamin C, even a thousand milligrams can cause nausea, diarrhea. So I think the idea that vitamin C is this panacea is widely mismarketed. And in people with G6PD deficiency, they can get hemolytic anemia. They can actually get hemolysis of red blood cells from even modest doses of excess vitamin C. So I think that the take home with vitamin C is that it's pretty clear experimentally and in practice that if you're eating reasonably fresh animal products, especially eating nose to tail, you'll get plenty of it. And there's no evidence that there's an antioxidant need related to inadequate vitamin C on a carnivore diet. And there's no evidence that more would be beneficial. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, 
two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So I'd love to go a little bit deeper, especially since you bring up the antioxidants, because that's what a lot of people also say is that we really need these antioxidants from plants. And I know it's more complicated than that because actually the way antioxidants are often working in plants, if I understand it correctly, is they're actually, you know, creating a more of a hermetic stress effect. So they actually are creating, they're actually toxic to us. And that's why we are ultimately getting rebounding and getting a beneficial effect from that. Do you like to go a little bit into the concept of plant toxins, antioxidants, that whole thing so listeners can understand that a little bit better? Yeah, this is a really fascinating concept. I'll try and walk everybody through it. So if we just back up one step, what I would say about a carnivore diet is that the premise, so the postulate that I would offer people is that if you actually look at the nutritional biochemistry, eating animals nose to tail, I would suggest can provide humans with all the nutrients that humans need to function optimally in the most bioavailable forms, in the proper ratios, without any of the toxins found in plants. So there's like three parts to that statement, and we can go through all of them. The first part is just kind of like we were talking about with vitamin C, that if you think about eating an animal nose to tail, just at a nutritional fact level, like all of the nutrients that a human needs to function optimally are in there in the right amounts and actually in the most bioavailable forms. If you compare plant-based versus animal-based forms of nutrients, animal-based forms are uh, so much more available to the human body, so much more usable and, you know, efficient and efficacious in the human body because they're from our operating system. There are often these parallel but not congruent forms of nutrients. You know, beta carotene is a good example. Beta carotene is essentially two vitamin A molecules together and plants use it as a pigment. Plants don't use vitamin A in the same way that humans do because they're sort of a different operating system. It's like MAC versus PC. Although in this case, I would say that humans are Mac because I have a bias for Macs and, you know, plants are PC or Windows. So there's different operating systems. We're not programmed in the same way. So this beta carotene doesn't, that's not a human molecule. Animal foods have vitamin A in the retinol form. That's a human like molecule. So we can use it directly. But when you get a plant molecule, your body has to convert it. And a lot of people have polymorphisms in their genetics, which are sort of singularities in their genetics, which may prevent them from doing that conversion very well. And there are many, many examples of this where the plant nutrients are just a different form than, than humans need. And it's very difficult to use them in the human body. We do so much less efficiently. Iron is a good example. You know, heme iron, H-E-M-E, heme iron in animals is so much more bioavailable. And it's very hard to correct an anemia without animal-based iron. And if you try and get iron from plants, it's usually chelated by phytic acid. It's very poorly absorbed. There's examples with niacin, which is vitamin B3, you know, in plants, it's uh, niacinamide in animals, it's nicotinic acid. And so it's just different, you know, like we don't use the same forms in, uh, in plants and animals. And so the, the idea, and the same thing is with omega-3s, you know, in plants, it's alpha-linolenic acid, in animals, it's DHA or EPA. And so the plant forms of these nutrients are just not as bioavailable as animals. That's just scientific fact. And so if you really start to think about it, you're like, 
wait a minute, I guess we can get every single thing we need from animals. And why are we not surprised? I mean, our biochemistry as a human is essentially the same as the biochemistry of a deer or a ruminant animal, like a sheep or a cow or a bison. We are very similar to them. Though we look very differently, our biochemistry is essentially the exact same. And they have muscles that contract just like ours, actin and myosin filaments. So in order to make the body of a ruminant, uh, a sheep, uh, a deer, a, a cow work, it's the same processes. It's the same biochemistry. It's the same chemical reactions that happen in a human almost entirely. I mean, it's like 99.99% the same. But if you look at a plant, it's completely different. Plants do photosynthesis. They don't have really any of the same biochemistry as humans. So to imagine that we can get all the nutrients we need from plants, that's that's not true. We just can't. And it's very difficult to do that. But animals, they look just like us. They're from our operating system in terms of biochemistry. So when we eat animals, we can really get everything we need. And there's kind of a, I don't know. I mean, this is this is my controversial part of the, the, the podcast. I'll, I've been sort of saying it recently, and it's just a thought experiment. It's, I'm not advocating for this. But if you think about it, you know, if a human, where would a human find everything that a human needs in the perfect ratios to make another human? If they ate another human. Eat another human. I love that you said that. Like you'd eat another human. Is that so, right? Is that what you, okay? That's exactly what I was going to say. Like I would, I would just ask people, you know, and I'm just afraid that's going to be too controversial, but I think they'll understand that it's a thought experiment. If you ate another human, would you ever think that you would get a nutritional deficiency? No. Why would you? That's another human. Clearly everything that you need to function is in that human. Well, what is similar? What is more similar to another human, uh, a deer or a cow or a kale plant, you know, it's like, it's not even a question, right? Like, why do we think that kale is more nutritious than a steak? Like, that's just ludicrous, you know, and a deer or a cow is very similar to a human. So if it's not occurring in one of those ruminant animals, or one of even a monogastric, like a pig, like those animals are so much more like a human in terms of all of their biochemistry. That's where we get the things we need. I guess what you could argue is that is there some sort of nutrition required by human, which is synthesized from a plant so that, and then in the final form, it supports the body, but you wouldn't necessarily get that. In, in a way, you need the, the supplies rather than the finished product, vitamins or fiber or anything like that. Does that make sense? Like somebody might say, yes, everything might be in the finished product, but you need the original supplies if you want to actually build that product again. But I mean, here's the thing, right? If you wanted to build an automobile, you could either get the parts and build the automobile, or you could get an automobile that's already built and dis disassemble it and then use it to build a new one, right? So the idea is, if it's already built, you know, we could digest it and then build a new one is the idea. So I see what you're saying that perhaps there are unique things in plants. But in terms of nutritional biochemistry, there's nothing that I think we've ever seen as humans that, that fills that role. And we can talk about, you know, this gets into the discussion of polyphenols and, and fiber. But in terms of micronutrients and actual pieces of a human being, whether it's vitamin E or vitamin A or calcium or manganese or magnesium, like it's all clearly in a human. You know, if you wanted to build a Porsche, you'd go to the Porsche factory store and get some parts for a Porsche, right? 
Okay. So that's a perfect example because now I'm really thinking about this analogy. It's like if you had a really nice car and it looked really shiny and um, say you wanted to create your own car from, you know, this, this Porsche, you, you wouldn't be able to get the, the shiny aspect for your new car because it, what was required was somebody to bring that that shiny spray or whatever. And so the 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 analogy I'm making is something like you just mentioned with polyphenols and plants or something like that, where somebody could say, yes, all of the nutrients are there in meat, but these special compounds that are really going to upgrade and really make that that human that human perform better or be more right. resilient, that th- that would be like the polyphenols and plants. Um, so right. in our analogy, that would be having the extra stuff you use to make the car all shiny that aren't actually available in that car for you to take from the car. Right, right. Okay, yeah, we can totally talk about that. So that's the that's like the buffing, you know, that's like the car wash, right? Like, how do you get the car shinier? You know, are there things in plants that are unique that we can't get from another human, basically? So I guess the argument that people would make there is that either that the polyphenols in plants are uniquely beneficial to humans, or there's something in plants that we need as humans that we can't get from eating another animal, right? Yes. Or there's just something in plants that can upgrade our performance. Like it's not necessarily required, but by having it, we would be, we're better off. Right. And that gets into the concept of hormesis. Is that kind of what you're referring to, this idea that, okay, the hormetic stress of plants? Yeah, we can totally talk about that because that's a very interesting discussion. So for people that are hearing us say this word, hormesis, and wondering what we're talking about, hormesis is this idea that a little bit of a toxin or a little bit of a stress can be good for us. And in medicine, in human physiology, there are examples of molecular hormetics, and there are examples of environmental hormetics. Environmental hormetics are things like exercise, heat, cold, and sunlight. And what I mean by those is that people will understand that if you exercise, it's actually kind of a little bit of a stress for your body, but then you stress your body, you're a little bit tired afterward, but then your body gets stronger in, in the long run, like you exercise a muscle, you do a bicep curl, it's sore the next day, it's actually broken down a little bit, and the body rebuilds it a little stronger. So there are these examples of environmental hormetics. And heat exposure and cold exposure are actually hormetics. That means they're a little bit of a stress for the human body. And people may not know this, but if we're actually talking about potential benefits from plants, like antioxidants from plants, quote unquote, antioxidants, you know, what we're generally talking about is oxidative stress and the ability to deal with oxidative stress and the body making more glutathione, which is the main molecular policeman in the human body that goes around and sort of controls these free radicals in the human body. So when people are sort of selling us on plants as they have these polyphenols, these polyphenols are antioxidants, it's important that we really understand that there are no compounds in plants that act directly as antioxidants in the human body. That is not true. These compounds in plants may have a molecular hormetic effect on the human body by being small amounts of stress, small amounts of toxins that then trigger the human body through molecular systems like NRF2 and then upregulation of genes involved in the production of molecules like glutathione, which is our own endogenous antioxidant molecule, 
that these plant stressors may upregulate our own glutathione. It's important that people realize that we don't need plants to make glutathione and that we every day encounter things which are hormetics for us. These are, like I said, environmental hormetics. You exercise, you jump in a cold pool, you go in a sauna, you're out in the sun. We, I would argue that those things that we do, living a quote-unquote radical life, can create an optimal antioxidant status in humans without plant hormetics. And I will substantiate that with some research. Now, if we return to the idea of plant hormetics, there are many of these polyphenols, whether we're talking about tannins or non-polyphenolic molecules like sulforaphane, which have been touted as antioxidants. These molecules actually come into the human body. They're very poorly absorbed from the beginning, uh, kind of the first signal that the human body doesn't really want these molecules. But the small amount that does get absorbed usually acts as a pro-oxidant, meaning it's the reverse of an antioxidant. And that's why it's a stressor to the human body, whether it's a tannin molecule or uh, a molecule like sulforaphane, which is technically not a polyphenol, but can be considered a molecular hormetic. And so the body sees the molecule, it detoxifies it, it gets rid of it, and it says, okay, that was a stressful thing. That molecule actually caused some oxidation in the human body. We know that when sulforaphane, for instance, which is a compound from broccoli sprouts, circulates in the human body, it causes oxidation of membranes and can actually create lipid peroxides and it can create free radicals. So it's doing bad things in the human body. The body says, okay, that was a dangerous thing. It damaged me a little bit. I'm going to upregulate glutathione, this molecular policeman, to be a little more of an antioxidant. So that is the effect of sulforaphane that we've all been told makes it so valuable. And what I would argue is that that is a redundant effect that we don't need. And the problem is that we are never told about the other more insidious effects of these molecules in the human body. We are just, the research just focuses in a very myopic way on the things that these molecules do that are good. And if you actually look at the whole body of literature, which is quite overwhelming because every molecule is very individual and there's a lot of literature on these molecules, what you see is that almost without fail, these molecules always do something bad somewhere else in the human body because they're from a different operating system. They're foreign molecules. It's like a virus coming from into your computer. You know, this is the Windows program that you're trying to install on your Mac, and it just causes things to kind of glitch out and not run well. In the case of sulforaphane, while sulforaphane may increase glutathione, through the NRF2 system, it also circulates in the human body for a short amount of time. And while it does that, it competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid for absorption, creating decreases in actual active thyroid hormone. So sulforaphane belongs to this compound of molecules called isothiocyanates. And isothiocyanates are generally derived from this, this mustard family, the brassicates. Well, the brassicates with isothiocyanates, these plants account for many, many, I mean, thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases of endemic goiter, which is hypertrophy of the thyroid. You've seen these pictures of these women or these men in Africa with this huge lump in their throat. That's goiter. That's related to inadequate iodine absorption at the level of the thyroid, often due to consumption of goitrogenic foods, foods that have excess amounts of these isothiocyanates. This is essentially what happens if you overconsume sulforaphane. So, what I would say is, why would we think that we would want to consume a molecule that has a redundant effect 
on our antioxidant status while also doing something negative somewhere else in the human body. I would argue that's a very clear net negative because if you look at the research, we clearly do not need these molecules to achieve optimal antioxidant status. There are many, many uh, interventional studies with fruits and vegetables, and I can cite some specific ones that show that when you give humans fruits and vegetables, and these studies have been done where they compare a group of people with no fruits and vegetables, they give them zero fruits and vegetables, and they give another group of people 600 grams or you know, a thousand grams, you know, of fruits and vegetables a day or per week, they give them pounds and pounds of fruits and vegetables per week. And they compare these two groups of people at the end of four or 10 weeks, depending on the study. And the endpoints are DNA damage and oxidative stress. And they see no difference between these. So at the end of four or 10 weeks, people are eating pounds and pounds of fruits and vegetables, or people are eating zero fruits and vegetables there's no evidence that the fruits and vegetables have any protective effect in terms of oxidative stress or markers of DNA damage. Endonuclease three sites, DNA repair, DNA nicks, DNA, you know, mismatch base pairs, things like this, or, you know, markers of oxidative stress. So I just said a mouthful. Hopefully some of that makes sense. So super valid arguments. I am, I'm really on the same page with the hormetic stress. I've personally seen all the benefits that I've experienced from hormetic stressors, such as intermittent fasting, cold exposure, exercise, things like that. And I understand that these plant compounds can act as hormetic stressors as well, but then they have the potential of because of our immune system interaction with the food that I do think for many people, they often end up creating a much more inflammatory response rather than the intended, you know, beneficial ultimate result of everything? Well, that's just, that's just the immunologic effects. What I'm talking about now are just the, the chemical, the biochemical effects of these polyphenols. We didn't even talk about the immunologic effects of lectins and things like that. What I'm just talking about is the same molecule that is shown to be hormetic can often be shown to be damaging somewhere else in the human body. And I'm not even talking about the immune system, but yes, you're absolutely right. Like coming with all of these polyphenols are lectins, you know, carbohydrate binding proteins from plants, which again, look different than humans. They're outside of our operating system and those can totally trigger the immune system and other toxins. So we've only scratched the surface of plant toxins by talking about these sort of collateral effects that are damaging and saying, hey, look, plants are just clearly net negative. We don't need them to function optimally. The research shows that. And they're going to do bad things. We can say show the same thing with resveratrol or curcumin. I mean, you pick a molecule. For most of the molecules that have been well studied, there's evidence that they have these negative effects elsewhere in the body. But we're not told about those because curcumin is a $100 million industry per year. Or at least sulforaphane is. I bet curcumin is more than that. So supplement makers stand to lose a lot of money on this. Everything you're saying makes complete sense scientifically. I understand that, you know, these plant compounds are acting, quote, beneficially because they're actually toxic and they are having an ultimately toxic effect. And so there, there's the argument of, well, we could get all the benefits without being exposed to that toxic exposure in the first place. So why don't we do that? My two questions to that are, A, despite all of that, we still see that the longest lived societies in the world all consume, you know, they're very much plant-based. Ooh, I'm going to debate that. 
I'm going to debate that. The concept of blue zones is wildly inaccurate. I'm going to debate that strongly. Well, okay. No, no, I'm excited too. I think it is also misunderstood as well because they all include animal products, the blue zones, with the exception of Loma Linda. I'm going to tell you about Loma Linda too. Yeah. So I guess that's one argument that's often given. So I'd love to hear your response to that. And then the second argument, separate topic, but we can circle back to it. Maybe we're unnecessarily exposing ourselves to this, this toxic exposure with plants, but I've heard the argument that because of our really toxic society today and environmental chemicals and things that our liver has to process now, that we benefit from taking in these toxic plants in a way because they, quote, teach our liver to better detoxify and deal with environmental chemicals which they might not be able to deal with as well if we take away that that learning system and that that priming that they're getting from plant antioxidants and plant toxins. That is a very hand wavy argument. <laughs> that is not like that is. Not, we can talk about that too, but that's a little that's a lot of hand waving in that argument. That I well, I guess it's like the idea of you know even milk thistle to use something like really straight up. We see that taking that really supports and studies supports the liver and helps with, you know, inflammation and regenerating. And I mean, I just think that we see with that, that's supporting the liver. And I know like, I don't know that we just really see that across the board and and that's in a supplemental form. Mm. If you actually dig into the research on silymarin, which is the concept, the compound in milk thistle, it's, it's not beneficial in the same way. So there's a lot of like rhetoric that the supplement companies want to tell us about that stuff. But the problem is that it's very difficult for the consumer to actually go to the research and look at what's happening. But I would argue, I think we should address the points in, in sequence. But yeah, that, that idea that plant, that plant compounds are tonic in any way for the body, that's just not supported by the research. It's really just sort of a fairy tale that's told to us by the supplement companies. And the bad news is that the Easter bunny is not real. But then we see anecdotally so many people taking milk thistle, for example, and, you know, retesting their liver enzymes and then improving. There's that's, you'd have to show me the case study and, you know, all these things like there's no mechanism there. And what else are they changing in their life? Right? Like this is the trouble. I mean, I did cite, you know, hundreds of anecdotes of people improving on carnivore diets, but if we're comparing anecdote versus anecdote, I I need to see a case study with that. I've never seen that actually happen. And then you're thinking like, is that the only thing somebody did? Like if somebody is taking milk thistle, they're clearly doing other health behaviors in their life, right? They're not just, that's not the one thing they did. That's true. People often start taking milk thistle because they realize there's a problem. And so they're, they are likely making other changes at the same time. And they do six other things, right? Did they stop drinking? Did they go to see a naturopathic physician or a holistic physician or a functional medicine doctor who had them stop eating gluten or stop eating corn or soy? Like, it's just like, I don't know. But I think what I will tell you is that, remember that plants don't have any interest in helping humans. Plants, like plants didn't design that compound to like, improve the liver's biofunction. Like that compound has been misunderstood. <laughs> the plant, the milk thistle plant wasn't like, I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to save the humans. Yeah. Trust me. Kale doesn't love you back. Like plants want to survive. Milk thistle doesn't really, I mean, it's not like it hates you. It's not, you know, it's not like a, you're, it's predatory on you, but milk thistle wants to be milk thistle and milk thistle's jam milk thistle's jam is just like making its seeds and reproducing and becoming a plant that just photosynthesizes. okay let's talk about the blue zones because this really i think is something that 
does a disservice to people when the notion of blue zones is discussed. So I really do not appreciate the work of Dan Buettner. This is cherry picking in the finest degree. Um, if you look at people who are centenarians in the world, there are many cultures that eat a ton of meat where there are lots of centenarians. So basically what they did was they picked six blue zones, but this is this notion of blue zones is again, it's kind of made up. Like those are the six you picked, but like there's so many more out there that we've never heard of. For instance, you know, look at the people of Hong Kong. The life expectancy in Hong Kong is 84.5 years. It's one of the largest in the in the world. They eat 1.5 pounds of meat a day. And the context of this whole discussion around blue zones is that the whole thing is sort of misguided because we really this is this is extrapolation in the finest degree. This is such imaginatory, you know, science. Like we are really really reaching. But if we're going to try and delineate some medical you know, grain of truth from this. We have to realize that we are on the shakiest of shaky grounds here. There are so many factors based on how people are living that determine their longevity. And, you know, so just with that in mind, I will also say that if you look at the genetics of people in the quote unquote blue zones, Okinawans, people in other parts of New England who have been classified as a blue zone there they generally within the medical community they are accepted to be clusters of longevity genes they live long in spite of what they eat not because of what they eat so these are clusters of polymorphisms in genes like foxo3 and genes like cetp and genes like sir2 and 1 these genes that are longevity genes if anyone has done 23 and me and looked at their genes there are a number of genes that are considered to be sort of longevity promoting and what we see time and time again when we look at these blue zones is that these blue zones are tight knit communities of genetic homogeneity, like people generally have a higher proportion of polymorphisms for the longevity genes in these locations. So to, to say that it's based on food is really a misinterpretation. That is really, really kind of a fable. The other thing is that look at the lifestyle of these people. You know, the lifestyle is one of the things that has been shown to be very beneficial in addition. There's a study that's done on the Mormons And basically what they found, I can actually give you the title, you know, what they found was that it was the Mormon, there were four or five habits from the Mormons in the Mormon population that led to their decreased longevity. But nobody ever talks about the Mormons as a blue zone. So this is lifestyle and reduced mortality among active California Mormons, 1980 to 2004. And the conclusion of the study is that they found that there were four or five behaviors that were all health behaviors that really translated and were associated with their lifestyle. And that led to death rates that were much lower. So they say the active California Mormons explained in this study, particularly those in the optimum subgroup with four basic lifestyle characteristics had total death rates that are among the lowest ever reported for a cohort followed for 25 years. Mormons do not shun meat you know, and had among the longest life expectancies yet reported in a well-defined U.S. cohort. This Mormon cohort is not one of the blue zones. So this is, this is cherry picking. The other thing I would say, if we're going to talk about the blue zones, what about Iceland? Iceland has the population of St. Louis, and there are 50 living centenarians in Iceland, which is an astronomically high number. Iceland, there's like plants can't even grow there. 
Like Icelanders do not eat a lot of plants. They mostly eat fish and ruminant animals. So the, the Blue Zones argument really just starts to fall apart just catastrophically in the face of science. Going back to Hong Kong, some of the longest lived nations in the world eat a ton of meat. France, tons of meat. Switzerland, tons of meat and saturated fat. Hong Kong, one and a half pounds of meat a day. Monaco has the highest longevity in the world right now, 89 years. You know, it's on the southern coast of France. Like, that's not included in the Blue Zones. So this idea of Blue Zones is really just an unfortunate fable that I think has been put on the human population, but it just sold to us to sell cookbooks and to say like, hey, look, these people are all eating a lot of plants. Well, no, they're like, that has nothing to do with their longevity. You can also look at Nicoya region of Costa Rica, which there's male longevity there and they eat a ton of meat. And then you mentioned Loma Linda. So let me tell you about Loma Linda. So if plants were associated with longevity, then we would see like tons and tons of health in the Loma Linda population. But we actually see is really, really bad sperm quality. So there's a really fascinating study that's called Food Intake Diet and Sperm Characteristics in a Blue Zone. It's even in the title, a Loma Linda study. And what they found in the study was that this study showed that the vegetables-based diet the vegetables-based diet, the food intake decreased sperm quality. In particular, there was a reduction in sperm quality in male factor patients, and there was decreased uh, motility and decreased numbers of sperm. So how can you say you have a blue zone when the male have like the most like pathetic sperm that, that they've measured? So it's, that's not even a blue zone. So that is fascinating. I did not know that about that study. What about the argument, though, that actually decreased reproductive factors are promoting longevity because the human is, quote, made to reproduce, or that's like the end goal of the human body. So with decreased reproductive factors, that would actually increase longevity. And more because it with women. So I haven't really applied it to men before, but I have heard the argument that, that women- I, Again- that's a pretty big stretch. Because we see things like, you know, calorie restriction, extending longevity. I would say that that fertility, reproductive vigor is a very good indication of vitality and nutritional status. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think that most people, if you ask them, and I'm not saying these are mutually exclusive in any way, shape, or form, but I think that if most people were asked, would you rather live long or live well? They would say, I'd rather live well. Like, why would you, the caloric restriction thing to me is so short-sighted. And we can talk about caloric restriction and the molecular mechanisms of caloric restriction, including activation of sirtuin genes, which can actually be achieved through ketosis. You don't need to do caloric restriction, but people who do caloric restriction, like you are turning on a subset of genes that can be turned on through fasting, as you know, and can be turned on through ketosis. And you're making yourself miserable, infertile, and basically destroying your libido in the process. And you're making your thyroid go, you know, like really far south. I mean, people who do caloric restriction are frail. They're constantly cold and shivering, and they don't have any desire to do anything fun. That's like the worst thing ever, you know, like... Caloric restriction is the least viable thing. So, and of course, it's going to make people infertile, both males and females. That's the worst intervention ever. And I think that there's never been, I'm not familiar with any literature that suggests that infertility is a correlate of longevity. And I think that what we're seeing here, I think it pretty clearly with the Loma Linda study, what you're seeing is that 
a plant-based or even a semi-plant-based diet, like vegetarian diet is just nutritionally inadequate. And you're seeing that in this very interesting indicator of sperm quality. And I suspect that if you looked in depth, you know, at bone health or any other, you know, testosterone, you would see major differences there. I mean, that would be, that's almost a clear indicator. Like you have less sperm and they're less modal, like you have less testosterone, your Leydig cells in the testicles are not working very well. That's a really poor prognostic factor. Even if those people were to live longer, they're going to live longer in like a frail, pathetic condition. Um, and I think that from the Mormon study, I would just emphasize that longevity can be associated with so many factors to say that it's diet in these people is number one, it's probably not even close to that. It's probably these clusters of genetics. And number two, like there are so many lifestyle factors, community, meaningful experience in our lives, slow pace of life, family clustering. Those are probably the longevity things in the blue zones. And they just cherry picked them because they didn't include any of the blue zones, quote unquote, where people eat a lot of meat. This is why I am such an advocate, not of calorie restriction, but of for me personally and for everything I write about, in, like intermittent fasting patterns while, you know, not restricting calories, getting all of your nutrients. So living, hopefully living both long and well by by getting the best of both worlds in a way. I just feel like there's an ongoing debate about the trade-off between growth and performance versus longevity. And I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced those are mutually exclusive. You know, I did a podcast yesterday with Stephen Gundry and he always brings up this idea of IGF-1 and people think about mTOR and AMP kinase. And I am just not convinced that performance and longevity are, are mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, Dr. Gundry wrote this book, The Longevity Paradox, and he has this concept that like animal protein ages us. And I disagreed with him on that very strongly. I think that the, the way that animal protein affects our bodies is completely dependent on context and if we're talking about IGF-1 and mTOR or the mammalian target of rapamycin, which is a very anabolic signal in the human body, the signals for mTOR are related to insulin much more strongly than protein. And the idea is that in the context of ketosis, in the context of fat-based metabolism, the response of the human body to protein is completely different than it is in the context of a mixed metabolism. So mTOR is different. Insulin is different. So, you know, protein can create an insulin spike in the context of a mixed diet. But when we're, when we're fat adapted and when we're in ketosis, protein doesn't create anywhere the same insulinogenic response. They're, they're completely different physiologies. So the context is completely different. And I mean, Dr. Gundry is very worried about IGF-1 and on the carnivores that I've seen, uh, you know, professionally and in myself, like the IGF-1 levels are lower than people on mixed diets. They're around 120. People on mixed diets are at 190. You know, the main factor for IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor 1, which is one of the ligands for, or, you know, one of the signals that will trigger mTOR downstream, the main driver for that is insulin. And what we're seeing with ketosis and you know, animal-based diets is very low insulin. So I would say that you can get, you can get anabolic stimulus without overstimulating mTOR if you're doing a, a ketogenic or a, an animal-based diet. That I think is the sweet spot, right? That they're not mutually exclusive. No, I definitely think meat protein has been so inaccurately portrayed with everything that you just said, it often is always in a mixed diet and it's the people who are eating meat. It's often very epidemiological and the people who are eating meat are the ones that are having a mixed diet. They're not 
they're having the protein and the meat in the context of these other like a high carb diet as well. I could go on about this. It, it does really bother me how, how it's been portrayed, especially protein and mTOR and everything like that. I was reading the study the other day and I, I have to pull up the link to it. It was showing that a vegan diet um, with all protein from plants did result in constant lower levels of IGF-1, which would kind of fly in the face of the idea that insulin is being the primary factor there. Because uh, understandably, it seems like a that type of dietary approach would be spiking insulin more. No, I mean, the context is very important there. I don't know, what were they comparing it to? Like a mixed diet? I imagine. Yeah, there's so many factors because, you know, basically... I don't know if you've ever done a vegan diet. You know, I had a phase where I was a raw vegan for seven months and I lost 25 pounds of muscle. Um, I tried for two days and failed and decided to never go back. <laughs> that was a fantastic. That was the best thing that ever happened to you that you failed. Yeah. So basically the idea is that there you can activate a lot of vegan diets are caloric restriction diets, right? So there's going to be a differential response of insulin and IGF-1 if you are calorically restricting someone. If someone is eucaloric on a vegan diet, I would argue that what we would expect to see is actually higher insulin because there are more carbohydrates. But if they are, if they are, you know, subcalorie uh, provided, right? So if they're actually calorie restricted on a vegan diet, which is very common. Um, because it's very hard to actually get enough calories on a vegan diet, then the insulin response can be different and IGF-1 can be different. So it's very important if you're looking at that study, whether they were getting, whether they were meeting their basal metabolic rate with a vegan diet, often they do not. We, you can actually feed someone a diet of Twinkies and see insulin improve if you calorically restrict them. So we could give you know, I wouldn't want to give it to you because it would be so, you know, it would be so mean to do it, but we could give, you know, we could give someone, some poor soul, we could give them three Twinkies a day and they would have improvement in markers of insulin sensitivity because they were calorically restricting and they would have improvement in IGF-1 because they were calorically restricting. So it, it's very important to say like, if, but if you gave someone enough Twinkies to meet their basal metabolic rate, or you gave them an excess amount of calories in Twinkies, you would absolutely see a huge spike in IGF-1 and, and insulin sensitivity would become abysmal. So it's all dependent on how many calories somebody's getting. And if it's just ad libitum feeding of a vegan diet, my suspicion is that they're caloric restricting because you they get so much gas and so much bloating that you actually cannot get enough calories. It's like you're you're sort of like, you're basically fasting a little bit, which we know is beneficial in some ways. But it's not because of the not because of the plant protein. Yeah, so I was just seeing if I could find it really quickly, and I don't even know if this is the one I was looking at, but the one I'm looking at right now is epidemiological, so we can kind oh. of just throw it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> you dare! How dare you bring epidemiology into this conversation? I don't know. I don't know if that was the one I was like thinking of was the same one. So, so I'll just I'll just mention for people here the this is probably one of the greatest services I think that can be done in terms of educating people is just people, I want people to understand that within research that is being quoted, the majority of the time people are quoting non-experimental epidemiology. So what I would ask people to do is when you hear about a study on the news, ask yourself or ask the person who's telling you about it, is that experimental or a non-experimental study. The word epidemiology actually can include experimental trials like randomized controlled trials 
or it can include non-experimental trials. And non-experimental epidemiology has generally become colloquially known as quote-unquote epidemiology. But the problem with non-experimental epidemiology is that there's no experiment here, right? They're doing food frequency questionnaires, they're looking at historical data, and they're making a correlation. And then the headline has a correlation, but there's no experiment. And the problem is that that correlation is not causative, and there are so many confounders, healthy user bias, unhealthy user bias. So yeah, basically what Melanie's talking about now is she's saying that one of the studies that she pulled up is an epidemiology study, meaning it was just like a survey. And they're saying, how much of this did you eat? And then they look to see how people did in terms of some health outcome. Well, the problem is that if they had a better or a worse health outcome, that may or may not have been related to anything they were eating. It may have been related to the fact that we've been told meat is bad for us for the past 60 years. And so generally people who eat meat are more of like a James Dean type of person. They're going to smoke and drink and ride motorcycles and, you know, curse and, you know, throw beer bottles and they're rebels. They wear the leather jackets. Those are the cool kids. And those kind of people generally have worse health outcomes than the people that play tennis and lead a safer life. And I'm, there's a little bit of hyperbole in that characterization, but hopefully people understand that that's the healthy versus the unhealthy user bias and that these studies are not very good at separating those other healthy behaviors that people do who are going to eat vegetables because we've been told vegetables are good for us. The people that eat vegetables generally do other healthier things and it's the healthy things they're doing, not the meat that is likely giving them a benefit in terms of longevity. And there are studies that are actually able to determine this and we see that. So the epidemiology is often quite confounded and yet it makes the news headlines and then people see stuff on the news that says, eggs are bad for you or bacon is bad for you. And it's just like, what are you talking about? Like, it's not even an interventional trial. I don't find it valid at all to use an epidemiological study to discredit an approach. Like, I, I really don't even think that's valid. Like, I don't think you could look at an epidemiological study and say, because we have this study, that means that this other diet will not work. The, the place that I see they might have a place is saying, we see in this epidemiological study that people following this diet experience this. And I think you could use that in support of that diet as a potentially beneficial diet for certain people. But I'm really glad that we um, clarified that for listeners as well, because it's so, so important and definitely misused. Often highly. Glad you brought up the gas and bloating. So the role of fiber. So I'll just say straight off the bat, one of the common things people say with carnivore is, oh, well, you need fiber for bowel movements. I'm just going to say, guys, I am the queen of struggling with IBS and bowel movements, and this is one of my other obsessions. So I will tell you, you do not need fiber for bowel movements. And there's research to support that. That said, research-wise, I've, I've only seen one study. I mean, it's, it was very much in support of it, but I can only find one study that is actually in support of it. That's a controlled trial. That's the one about stopping reducing fiber. Stopping or reducing fiber improves idiopathic constipation. Yeah, it's 2012 World Journal of Gastroenterology. There are other ones as well that are, I think, interventional with fiber and constipation and diverticulosis. They basically, yeah, they've done it a few times. But yeah, there are studies that suggest that addition of fiber does not improve constipation and removal of fiber often improves constipation for people. So fiber is often causing constipation. And I think that probably often does involve just the person's current digestive state and their gut microbiome and how they're processing that fiber. Is it benefiting their body? Is it 
you know, creating healthy bowel movements or is it exacerbating the problem by potentially feeding overgrowth, creating a more, you know, toxic inflammatory environment and that's leading to constipation? What do you say to people when they say we need fiber for bowel movements and for the gut microbiome? Well, those are two vastly different things, right? So we absolutely do not need fiber for healthy gut motility and or bowel movements. I mean, that has been proven a hundred thousand times by people who are carnivore and have the most beautiful poops every day, you know, like. Okay. Quick question. I agree. I see that a lot. That said, I've seen a lot of anecdotes, testimonials, and equals one experiments of people who attempt, who attempt carnivore, stay on it for a long time, but their bowels never seem to regulate. Would you say if they stick it out long enough, regardless, their bowels will regulate eventually? Yeah, yeah. In most cases, it absolutely does. And that gets into a little bit of the nuance. You know, a carnivore diet is not going to fix H. pylori, Clostridium difficile, blastocystis, or, uh, you know, uh, entamoeba histolytica. So if people have resident parasites or, you know, pathogenic microbes in their gut, a carnivore diet is not going to fix that. So people can come to a carnivore diet with quite a bit of dysbiosis. But if people have general problems with motility or small bowel overgrowth or just generalized bacterial dysbiosis, yeah, um, the carnivore diet can be extremely helpful to uh, adjusting that. Now, when people do transition to carnivore diets, there's often a major shift in the gut flora. And so almost everyone who goes to a carnivore diet experiences some degree of loose stool for some amount of time. And that's just an adjustment. And it's probably due to die off, switching over of the microbiome, and then possibly increased uh, bile acid production and a gradual readjustment of the small intestine into reabsorbing those increased bile salts. Just like we know when we go to a ketogenic diet, there are adaptations in our biochemistry and we have to become quote unquote fat adapted in our biochemistry. We really have to become kind of animal-based diet adapted in our gut. And most people, I mean, basically everyone that I've work, worked with, once we, if they have a pathogen, once we eliminate the pathogen, their gut will normalize. But often the issue is that um, they don't, they don't take that next step. Or I think people who come to carnivore with particularly, uh, bad gut issues will probably take longer to resolve and they can have diarrhea for four weeks or six weeks. And that's part of the adjustment process, but generally it does resolve. Most people, people may not last that long, unfortunately. Um, but it, it can be part of the adjustment phase. Yeah, for sure. What about the importance of fiber to bind to toxins and things like that. If a person is over, has a lot of stored toxins in their body, I, I mean, do they possibly need fiber to bind to toxins and excrete them? No, no. Your your body is perfectly good at doing all of phase one and phase two metabolism in the liver. Um, so the idea with fiber, and this is an interesting part of fiber, is that if you ingest a toxin, yeah, you can give someone activated charcoal, which is basically like wood fiber that's been burned, or you know, you can give someone um, you can give someone fiber, and that will that will bind to a toxin that's already in the gut. But fiber is not going to help you pull things out of the body. You know, fiber is not going to help you pull anything out of your tissues. But if you eat something toxic and you want some plant fiber in there 
to bind the toxic thing, sure. But why would you eat a toxic thing in the first place, right? That doesn't make sense to me. Um, and your body is going to be able to get rid of those things normally. That's what phase one and phase two detoxification are in the liver. Your body does methylation and glucuronidation and, you know, conjugation of toxic substances to these, to these compounds in phase two detoxification in the liver. And then they're excreted in the bile or in the urine. Um, so they get out in the stool or the urine and that's what your liver does. That's how you detoxify things. Fiber doesn't have any part in that. The, the downside of fiber in the gut is that fiber does many things which are damaging in the gut. It can be directly damaging to the gut lining or it can bind to nutrients. <laughs> like just like it binds to toxins, you know, in the gut, if you're eating food with toxins in it, fiber can bind to nutrients in those foods and prevent the absorption of those nutrients. Fiber can also change the pH of your stomach in a negative fashion, making your stomach less acidic. And so fiber, though it may bind things, that's usually a negative thing because most of the food we're eating is not that toxic. Unless you're eating food off the ground from a super fun site, like why do we think that there's so many toxins in our food that we need to bind with the fiber? What I would say is that most of the time, the fiber is just binding up nutrients that you want to absorb, and you're going to excrete those. It's also changing the pH of your stomach when you eat it, making the stomach less acidic, which inhibits our digestion of important molecules. And then going back to polyphenols, we go way back. Polyphenols are also known, like tannins, to inhibit the digestion of molecules and things we need. So again, plants messing with our digestion is the theme here. But no, we don't need we don't need fiber to excrete toxins. Our body can do that normally. I hear everything you're saying. I think it's a super valid point. I, I just am very, very wary of like the massive toxic exposure that we have today. And like what? What are you worried about? Heavy metals, environmental toxins. Like what kind of heavy metals? Mercury, cadmium. Okay. How are, how are you getting those? Mercury from fish, amalgams. Right. So... Okay. So if somebody's getting mercury from an amalgam, it's going into their sort of bloodstream directly, almost directly from their mouth. I guess it could, could, could get absorbed in their gut, but fiber is not going to necessarily be that effective at binding those heavy metals. Once those heavy metals come into our bodies, we can detoxify them with glutathione. The liver can get rid of them normally. So I think that this is, a, again, a little bit of hand-waving to say that like fiber is going to protect you from heavy metals. Like You're going to absorb a lot of them anyway, and you just you want to mitigate your exposure from them in the first place, right? You don't want to eat fatty fish like tuna that has a bunch of mercury. You got to be aware that shellfish has cadmium, and then you want to support your body with nutrients primarily nutrients from animals, like the amino acids from animals, so that you can make glutathione to detoxify them on your own. I've never seen a study to suggest that fiber is going to prevent, you know, mercury toxicity in anyone. We have things like modified citrus pectin, and we see it in studies reducing, you know, mercury toxicity in the body. I guess I'm coming to it from like a broader picture of without the fiber, is there more potential for, you know, when we're eating a food that has toxins in it for that toxin to actually be absorbed rather than potentially flushed out, bound to with the fiber and eliminated rather than absorbed. You kind of have to realize like that, that situation you're like, okay, I'm going to eat a toxin. Like 
okay, like if you're going to eat a toxin, yeah, if you're going to eat a toxin, you might want to eat a binder, you know, you might want to eat some activated charcoal, but I'm not saying that like, I don't think you need that, you know, like you can go on a sauna and also, you know, detoxify mercury through your skin that way or remove the amalgams. Like I still think fiber's a net negative because when you take that modified citrus pectin, it's going to totally mess the digestion in your stomach up completely. It's going to totally change the pH of your stomach. And then it's going to, you're not going to digest anything. And then you're going to get deficient in other minerals. And then when it goes into your gut, it's going to bind those minerals and you're not going to absorb them. I have a lot of problems with this idea, you know, like there are better ways to detoxify heavy metals. And I think that the best thing is to understand where they're coming from. I don't think that that's a strong argument, at least in my mind. I mean, you bring up a great point, but in my mind, that's not a reason to eat plants. I think that's a reason to be aware of where these metals are coming from and, um, you know, how do we mitigate that exposure? And then, like I said, do the things that are environmental hormetics, uh, like especially sauna to get rid of those things in other ways. You don't need modified citrus pectin to get rid of, you know, metals. Yeah. Sometimes we do give, give binders, you know, you can give somebody DMSA, you know, but that's going to get absorbed in the bloodstream and maybe you can accumulate things there, but that's a little different. Yeah. Where I'm coming from, in case you're wondering, I got mercury toxicity and what from it has to be from fish because I didn't have amalgams. It's common. This is something I've been thinking about and I really want to experiment more, more with carnivore, but I've just been hesitant about things like keeping bowels going and these, like, this idea of fiber attaching to toxins. You mentioned pH of the stomach. That's another question. People say that we need plants to maintain alkalinity in the body. <laughs> so I will say, just to give you my, my opinion that I want to hear you go at it full speed. When I first heard the idea that we needed plants for to be alkaline and that that was important. I actually, I thought it was a silly idea. I was like, no, because, um, you know, people will say that what we eat doesn't determine, you know, our blood alkalinity and our, our body works very, very consciously, uh, to maintain our alkalinity. And it's not really affected by what we eat. That said, I think it's been shown and we see that it, it requires in a way more effort to maintain alkalinity if we are taking in an overly acidic diet. Maybe, yes, maybe we won't become, quote, acidic, but is it taxing, and this is what I'm asking, is it taxing the body to maintain that state of alkalinity because it's having to pull nutrients from other places rather than the plants? But of course, we did say that we did talk about how carnivore could be completely nutritious, so maybe that would be an argument to respond to that. Just anecdotally, and I, I just feel like I see a lot of people feel like they get quote more acidic when they're doing high meat. What are your what are your thoughts on pH? This is a pet peeve of mine. So this is widely misunderstood as well and often misquoted. Um, so the idea here is that the first thing you said is true, um, or I should say, I agree with the first part you said that. Foods do not change the pH of the human body. The pH of the human body is usually around 7.4, and it is so tightly regulated. It is so tightly regulated that the idea of being acidic or alkaline is just, it's just to sell products. I mean, you show me the person that doesn't, that doesn't sell something when they're talking to you about acidity or alkalinity. Like, this is, this is snake oil, in my opinion. Like, we cannot change the pH of our bodies with food. We do not do this. But does our body have to work harder to maintain alkalinity based on our food choices? 
And again, I would say no. And the reason I would say that is because, again, that's where it becomes hand-waving, right? Like there is no medical physiology for literature to, to document this. This is people who are not physicians talking about this. And this is not nephrologists talking about this. Like we do not have to work harder to maintain the alkalinity when we eat acidic foods. And then the question is, what is an acidic food? Like you have to remember everything that you eat goes into the acidity of your stomach. Your stomach is a pH of one. These molecules get broken down and you have all of these things in place you have a bicarbonate system in your body. You use bicarbonate to buffer carbon dioxide. We can change the acidity of our body by breathing, but that's what we do is we breathe off acid. We can moderate this. We have all of these mechanisms built in. We have built-in buffering systems. Our body is so exquisite. And the idea that we have to work harder to maintain a normal pH when we're eating quote-unquote acidic foods is it's just pseudoscience. That's just not true. There's no evidence that people are in any way, shape, or form using more minerals or excreting more minerals or doing any of those things in a negative way when they're eating animal-based diets. The pH of the urine changes because you're in ketosis and ketones are acids. They're keto acids. So there's beta-hydroxybutyrate in the urine. You can change the acidity of your urine just by being in or out of ketosis. It doesn't have to do with that. So I've seen people, you know, mixed diets of people that I work with and they're eating junk food and their urinary pH is 7.5. And my urinary pH is 5.5 because I'm in ketosis, right? But they're not eating, they're not eating quote unquote an alkaline diet. This idea of an alkaline diet is really, it's really pseudoscience. And it really kind of bothers me. Like these people do not understand the way that acid-based balance works in the body or the way human physiology works. We have built in buffering systems in the human body that take care of this eating protein molecules. I mean, think about it. Like how do you even tell if a food is acidic or alkaline? If you listen to these people talk, they'll say, Oh, even a food, like even a food, like, um, vinegar is alkaline in the human body or lemon juice is alkaline. And I'm thinking like, what are you talking about? That is the most, like, that is the most pseudoscientific thing I've ever heard in my life. Like you're saying there are a lot of protons in this food, but that food is going to create, is going to create hydroxyl, you know, is going to, is going to be alkaline in the human body. Like that's just like you failed general chemistry in, in college. Like that cannot happen. Like they just want to imagine this. This is just, again, it's a fairy tale. Like there, the idea of acidic and alkaline foods is this is, this is a, um, this is a Pied Piper fairy tale. People should not worry about this. There's no evidence your body has to work harder or use more minerals for this. Um, this is not true. There's no physiologic basis to this. Even the idea you know, that, that it's, that it's creating an acidic load in the human body. It's not true. It does sort of bother me. <laughs> it always has that people say, oh, this food is al- acidic. This food is alkaline. When the food is going to enter, you know, your stomach, which is very acidic, then into the intestine, which is very alkaline, the acidity or alkalinity of that food is going to change once it, once it enters your digestive system. So that argument is kind of out the window. But then there's the people who talk about like the prowl potential of foods, which would be the quote, acidic or alkaline potential of the when that food is metabolized by the body. So the the byproduct of that food rather than the actual food itself being acidic or alkaline. And that, you know, if you have a buildup of foods that are creating an acidic ash, which is what they call it, which sounds very like not scientific, but <laughs> um, if you had mostly foods that are creating this acidic ash that your body would have to work 
harder to counterbalance that. And I know you're saying that the body doesn't have to work harder, but does it not have to work harder? I mean, if it if it is having to... What do we mean work harder? <laughs> like, like have to pull minerals from other places in the body to counterbalance. That has never been shown to be true. And that is the argument that people make with the Prowl score, or these things is that they're pulling minerals from other places. And that has never been shown to be true. What does happen is that the body has a built-in buffering mechanism, right? I would argue that as humans, we have been eating meat and animal-based diets almost exclusively throughout our evolution as humans. There's fossil evidence for that. So we have been eating animals for our entire evolution as humans. Animals, I would argue very strongly, are what allowed us to become human. We ate vegetables as chimps for 35 million years. And it was when we started eating animals that we became humans and grew bigger brains. We have been eating almost exclusively animals. If you look at the uh, the stable radioisotope data from collagen in humans and Neanderthals from 70,000 years ago, we had so much nitrogen in our bones that was higher than other known carnivores. Essentially, people accept that like Homo sapiens 70,000 years ago and Neanderthals were carnivorous. So we have, and the magic of that is that we have mechanisms built into our bodies to deal with that. So yes, the body has a biochemical uh, has a biochemical plan to deal with amino acids that may have a different pH than other amino acids. Yeah, there are sulfur-containing amino acids that are more acidic than certain amino acids. But this is built into our biology, and the idea that this causes quote-unquote stress or pulls minerals from other places is is false. They're looking at like urinary measurements of minerals and not accounting for the fact that we can absorb more minerals on low carbohydrate diets. And it's very difficult to account for all of that. But when you look at it all, like the human body has been doing this for millions of years. We're adapted to do this. It doesn't, the idea that it creates stress is where it gets to be kind of voodoo. Like that's the falsity, you know, we can adapt to it. Does it change our physiology? Yeah. Is it stressful? No, we have adaptations for it. Have you seen the work of Wim Hof though and mindset and breathing and alkalinity of the blood? That's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, work. I mean, I except Wim Hof is I mean, okay, look. Respiratory alkalosis is a really bad idea. <laughs> like forced listen, forced forced respiratory alkalosis, which is what happens when you hyperventilate, is a bad idea because the body uses carbon dioxide levels in the blood to determine how dilated the blood vessels in the brain are going to be. So what happens when you hyperventilate is that your blood vessels in your brain constrict. So what Wim Hof is doing is he's basically making your brain hypoxic and people are getting into these quote meditative states. This is really not a good idea. You are depriving your brain of oxygen and blood flow and then people are getting into a meditative state. Yeah. If you make your brain hypoxic, you can enter an altered state of consciousness but doing it through forced respiratory alkalosis, which is by blowing off all of your CO2 by, you know, hyperventilating, this is a really bad idea. This is, again, this is pseudoscience. I mean, I'm just telling people. I don't know if it's pseudoscience because I don't know. Have you read the most recent clinical trials that he's done? They're, they're very well controlled and they show that implementing his techniques literally changes the immune factors of the participants and those practicing his- wait. Is that a good thing? This goes back to the roots of inflammation. I know exactly. That's why I'm really excited to talk about it with you. No, it's totally a bad idea. You're blunting your immune system. Basically, you're 
you're shutting off the immune system when you want the immune system to be activated. They did the study where they had people do his technique and they injected them with lipopolysaccharide, which is this huge mitogen from gram-negative bacteria, and they didn't mount an immune response. They did not not mount an immune response. They had an immune response categorized by less inflammation. So it was a more beneficial immune response. That's why I- No, no. Yes, yes. No, yes. there, an, an immune response is an immune response. It didn't like, stop the immune response. When you inject someone with lipopolysaccharide, you want an inflammatory immune response. You absolutely want an inflammation immune response. There's no such thing as like a good immune response to lipopolysaccharide. Again, this is misinterpretation of the data. <laughs> These people, this is pseudoscience. Like if you inject someone with lipopolysaccharide, that person should mount an inflammatory immune response. I want my immune system going haywire because in any other condition other than what they did in the experiment, that person has sepsis, right? There is no good response of the immune system to sepsis and no bad response to sepsis. There, you want inflammation going bonkers when you're septic. So the fact that you can change the alkalinity of the blood and it changed the immune response, that's a really bad thing. This is not a healthy thing for the immune system. Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours 
And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits the longest-lived populations drink wine, the polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. Okay, so 
I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E. 
with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Like I said, I didn't stop the immune response, but it was what they considered to be more anti-inflammatory immune response categorized by less inflammatory cytokines. And that, for example, doing the Wim Hof method generated higher levels of adrenal hormones, like catecholamines. When I read the study, I did get the impression that it was modulating the immune, because we're going to have an immune response constantly to anything. And, And if we know that chronic inflammation is often the cause of so many health conditions that we have today, if we could do techniques that would, you know, modulate the immune system. And yes, it is true that they injected them with lipopolysaccharide, which is an actual toxin. But if there is a technique that could modulate the immune system to have a less inflammatory response to other things, which it seems that his method does, regardless of the source material of the toxin, I could see how that would be beneficial for anybody in life to just, in a way, calm their immune system and not have this chronic inflammation. Maybe this type of technique also modulating your system to not have an overactive inflammatory response to things that should not be having an overactive inflammatory response to in the first place. In this case, you absolutely want an inflammatory response to LPS. They use LPS in the study, but I'm saying the mechanism had that effect. So could we use that in our daily life? No, you're. I'm disagreeing with you. <laughs> it's not the same. It's not the same. This is not the same. The Wim Hof method, in my opinion, is 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 not valuable. It's dangerous and it's a bad idea. And this modulation of the immune system is not the answer. The answer is understanding the root cause of the inflammation. It's not trying to characterize it as less inflammatory. When you inject someone with lipopolysaccharide, you want an inflammatory immune response. I understand that, but I'm just saying the technique, the concept, using that to modulate the immune system. I know in the study they use LPS, and trust me. I have a honestly a, a fear of LPS because I'm always convinced that I'm reacting to it a lot. But yeah, I'm saying the technique as a whole, possibly for other things, could be beneficial. I don't think so, but you know, I'll let people decide. I would love to talk about this even more with you. <laughs> we can agree, disagree. I do want to get to some other topics. We didn't talk about the microbiome. I know, or fruit, or fruit. <laughs> uh, but what I will do. I will let listeners read the studies themselves because I think that's like the best thing is to read it for yourself, reach your own conclusions. So I will put links in the show notes to the studies that we're talking about so listeners can read that source material and make their own evaluations. Because in the end, I think that's most important is to read the source material rather than what somebody said about the source material. The thing that drives me crazy about the microbiome is people will say, oh, this strain is correlated to health. This strain, you need this strain to be healthy. When really... The gut microbiomes of different populations and different healthy cultures are so different. And I think it's very short-sighted to assume that because one microbiome in one population seems to support health and longevity, that that's going to be the right microbiome for another person in a completely different environment. And that speaking of environment, it probably has to do with the environment of the body and what sort of gut bacteria support an anti-inflammatory state, support assimilation of nutrients. So I, I personally don't have any problem at all, at all with um, the idea of carnivore and how it affects the gut microbiome. 
But how do you respond to that? And how, like, what do you say when people are saying that, oh, we need, we need plants to have a healthy gut microbiome? I think that you put it very well. I mean, that statement is based on the supposition that we understand what a healthy microbiome is. You know, like if I said to you, you know, uh, you know, you can't even define what a healthy microbiome is. How do we know what we're going for? You know, we, we can say like, you know, if you give someone fiber, you'll see changes in their gut flora. But I can also say, hey, if you give someone fiber, they could have extreme gas bloating and constipation and inflammation in the gut. So um, clearly, we don't even know what a healthy microbiome is. And I think that there's so much to be done here. I will say that some people say, that we need lots of plant sources or fiber for increased diversity in the gut. And I would argue that that is false, that there's no evidence for that, that if you actually look at the literature, fiber does not increase alpha diversity, which is ecological diversity within a certain niche uh, in an ecosystem. So fiber does not increase the amount of bacterial speciation diversity in the human gut. It just doesn't. Um, I don't think that we know what does, but what we generally see is that people with low diversity do have more inflammation and insulin resistance. And I think that that's probably reasonable. And if we look at people on carnivore diets, they have essentially no inflammation and no insulin resistance. So I don't know why anyone would conflate the two ideas and say, oh, you're going to get a low bacterial diversity on a carnivore diet. In the samples from people's microbiomes that I have seen on carnivore diets, the alpha diversity is actually quite high. And many people have alpha diversity that increases on a carnivore diet. And they have appearance of populations of bacteria that we imagine to be helpful, like acromantia, um, things like that. That's, that's Mr. Gundry's favorite. Did that come up in your interview? It did not. It did not come up in my interview. I wish that had come up because he loves that one. I think that what we know is that maybe acromancia is beneficial when you're fasting or is involved when you're fasting. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of acromancia in carnivore guts. And so, and they're very different. And like you said, we don't even know what a healthy gut microbiome is. I've heard it stated probably most eloquently um, when one of my friends said, the microbiome you have when you are healthy is probably the healthiest microbiome for you. So we, to imagine that we understand what a healthy microbiome is to just, is just fallacy. So, but if you actually look at the research, I think that it's very shaky and a lot of, um, it's a lot of, uh, conjecture to say that the research would suggest that you need multiple different types of plant fiber for alpha diversity. We definitely don't see that. And then, then people sometimes say, oh, you need short chain fatty acids. Well, you may need short chain fatty acids, but many things can make short chain fatty acids, including protein. You know, protein can be digested to different short chain fatty acids. You know, there are, you know, there's butyric acid or butyrate, but there's also propionate, isobutyrate. These can be made from proteins as well as carbohydrates. And then if you're in fat-based metabolism, your enterocytes of the gut can use ketones directly for fuel. So the idea that you need carbohydrates to make this magical short-chain molecule called butyrate is false. We can also make short-chain fatty acids out of collagen and things that we would find in meat. So I love the microbiome discussion because I think it advances the idea. But again, it seems to all be based on this dogma or this canon that is not supported by the literature. And there's also fascinating study on fasting showing that fasting actually increases microbial diversity. Right. I often think about the carnivore diet and in a 
way it's similarities to fasting. Well, I think that's a great point that if fasting increases microbial diversity, why do we think we need fiber to do that? You know, like clearly we've got the whole equation wrong, right? So big question though, I really want to ask you, this is the one I've been thinking about so much. Um, reason, one of the reasons I love, you know, the whole carnivore diet concept is because everything we talked about with plant toxins, that it's, it's providing the fuel, it's providing nutrition, and it's getting rid of all of these compounds that could potentially be creating problems because, you know, plants don't want to be eaten. So they have all of these toxic compounds. What about something like fruit? Fruit in from the argument, and I know that fruit has a lot of compounds in it that, you know, do spark oftentimes like immune or inflammatory responses for people. That aside, the logic of the idea of plants don't want to be eaten, fruit wants to be eaten <laughs> um, because it's the, uh, you know, it's the way that the plant spreads its seed. So what are your thoughts on a not carnivore diet, but a diet made of compounds that food sources that would not, in theory, by the logic, have these toxic compounds. So that would be, you know, maybe just a meat and fruit diet or maybe like a meat and honey diet. Um, I'm not a fan and I'll tell you why. So we know that fructose is a very toxic molecule for humans. We seem to be able to tolerate a little bit of it, but it's a five carbon sugar as opposed to a six carbon sugar in glucose. And fructose doesn't really occur very prominently, you know, it does a little bit, but it's not as prominent outside of the plant kingdom. There's certainly no fructose in animals. We don't use that sugar. If you look at human metabolism of fructose, it causes increases in uric acid. It also causes shifts in energy metabolism in the brain. It can change leptin and satiety signaling, and it appears to actually cause some degree of insulin resistance, which is probably at the root of many chronic diseases. Have you seen studies showing that using whole fruit, not using refined fructose? I'd have to look specifically. I don't think there's a big difference, honestly. I do. They, I don't know if they've done it. I don't believe there's a difference. You know, I mean, you got to remember, like, it's going to get digested into fructose no matter whether it's a fruit or not. And I know that people want to believe that fruit is that fruit, that fruit is beneficial because it's like a magical whole food. But listen, or at least this is my perspective, like fruit is plant pornography, you know, like the plants are using us. They're making this like sexy, bright fruit, but it's just, it's just not a long-term relationship. There's no good potential there for us to have a real relationship with the fruit. But it would not benefit the fruit to poison the person eating it's not, it. It's not, poisoning, it's not poisoning us in the short term. It's poisoning us in the long term if we overconsume the fruit because of the fructose. But it's, the plant is clearly using us. The plant is using humans to move its fruit around. There's nothing really beneficial in fruit. Like there's no real nutrients in fruit that humans get. People might say vitamin C and I would say, all right, we've already talked about that. You don't need it. And people would say fiber and I would say, no, the fiber in fruit is not beneficial for humans. And fructose I think is damaging, not as an acute plant toxin, but because it's a different operating system. It's a five carbon sugar. We don't have five carbon sugars. I mean, we do a little bit in our human metabolism, but we only use them for a second. Like we don't really ingest five carbon sugars from animals. And I think that it's, like I said, it's plant pornography. It's just using us. It's like this pinup girl. It's super sexy and it gets us to eat it. And then it just leaves us in the morning. It's nothing long-term. Like there's no long-term benefit from the fruit. It's just like using us. Plants are controlling humans. And I think that we probably would have eaten fruit 
you know, from an evolutionary perspective in order to get adequate macromolecules and nutrients. But I don't think fruit has any unique benefit. And I think if you actually look at the dental health of populations that eat a lot of fruit or honey, they're abysmal. And these are considered quote unquote whole foods. I mean, the Hadza and the San, when they eat too much honey, their teeth really get degraded. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of dentists about this. We know that when we consume carbohydrates, the pH of the mouth changes and it becomes more acidic. And that leads to overgrowth of the wrong type of bacteria and erosion of the enamel in the mouth. And I think that then we get also gingivitis and gum disease. There are studies that suggest that low carbohydrate diets improve the the microbiome of the gingival tissue in the in the mouth. And so I see the dental health as a real reflection and microcosm of the whole body. And so to me, if something is bad for the mouth, it's not something I want to do. I don't believe there's any benefit. Like, what is the benefit of eating fruit other than the fact that it tastes good? Yeah, if you want to, if you like it, just don't think it's good for you. Like, it's not good for you, you know, just like a cookie is not good for you. Um, I don't think that it's benign in any way, shape or form. I guess whether or not it's good for you would depend on our original conversation about a person's view about receiving vitamins, nutrients, and such from fruit. And I think that would determine whether or not you would say that fruit is good or bad for you. Yeah. I think in most cases, it's clearly net negative. I mean, you could say, oh, blackberries have a lot of polyphenols. And I would say, yeah, yeah, so what? You know, like, show me what they're doing in the human body. And they also have a ton of oxalates, you know, which are clearly dangerous and bad for humans. So I think that it's a pretty strong argument against fruit because all fruit is going to have fructose and some fruit is higher glycemic index than another. But I think it's pretty hard to make a case that fruit has any real value for humans, other than the fact that it sustained us from a macro uh, nutrient perspective. You know, if you need calories and you're going to die without the calories, sure, eat a piece of fruit. But if you believe that the fruit has any nutritional value for a human, I would say uh, pretty clearly net negative. It's not that people can't eat it. I don't want to come off as a zealot. I'm just saying like, I want people to understand the context of all of this. And I want them to understand that like, yeah, like I believe humans are facultative carnivores, meaning that we have eaten plants throughout our evolution during times of starvation. And we can eat plants without dying. But my strong feeling is that the more animal products we eat, the more of these optimal nutrients and this optimal food we're going to get. And so sure, we can eat plants if we want to for social reasons or if we enjoy them. But I think we're going to feel better if we eat more animals. And for people that are really sick or have chronic inflammation or autoimmunity, I think that it's very interesting and perhaps groundbreaking to suggest that plants could be triggering that. And a lot of people with these very bad conditions can improve radically when they cut out all the plants. So, but if people want to eat plants, they can do it. I just don't want them to imagine that they're doing anything good for their bodies, you know, enjoyment if you want it, but yeah. Yeah, no, I can see how we can argue that the carnivore diet is in a way, the perfect diet for a human being and we'll create the perfect state or not perfect, but we'll create the optimal state of function. That's why we should encourage it. It's just harder for me to make the argument that following, if it's, if it is, if a person follows a certain diet that is high in plant matter and that diet is supporting their health seemingly, regardless of if it's because of plant toxins, because of this hormetic stress, because of, you know, whatever it's because of, regardless, if they're following this diet and it 
supports an anti-inflammatory state in them, regardless of the mechanism, I can't say, I mean, I find it difficult to say, oh, that plants are always, should always be avoided because I do think it does work for some people. But then maybe, maybe even for those people, maybe if they went carnivore, they'd be even better. That's what I would argue. But who am I, who am I to say that if somebody feels like they're kicking all the ass they want to kick, you know, if they're, if they're really doing great in their life and they're eating a plant-based diet, then that's awesome. Like what I am interested in, I think what we're all interested in is helping people achieve the highest quality of life. And so however people define that, but I think that my hypothesis, my postulate would be that, I mean, I went on a podcast recently with Rich Roll and we had, you know, a little back and forth debate and it's like, look, I mean, that guy looks healthy and he's a pretty good athlete. You know, he's not competing at the highest level anymore, but I would argue that like he is going to kick way more ass and he doesn't even know how good he could be on animal foods, but he chooses not to do that. And that's fine. Like that's his prerogative. He's happy. Don't change. But I think that's the message is that, you know, if we really accept this, or if we even consider this idea that animal foods are the ideal foods, then, you know, I think the more of them you eat, the better you're going to do. But, you know, I'm not going to tell people to change if they're feeling good. I just want to offer it to people who are hoping to feel better as an option. But I think that most people would feel better if they eliminated some or all the plants in their diet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think carnivore can benefit so many people and is quite possibly the, the optimal diet for a lot of people. But like with Ritual, for example, he's following this diet. He's, he seems to be, you know, thriving on it, doing so well. Who am I to say that he would do better on carnivore? What's the benefit of investing energy and in saying why certain dietary approaches are wrong if they are benefiting a certain person compared to just supporting why, you know, carnivore diet could be right? Because I'm so on board with carnivore. It's ridiculous. Um, I think it's amazing. And I think it's so spot on and addresses so many things. But I just don't see the, the purpose of and – I, and I think it's really important to discuss why plants can be toxic, especially in large amounts, and why people need to be careful and why we should reevaluate the whole com- – the whole – you know, we need, we need like a paradigm shift in everything. That said, I don't see why we would need to – discredit other dietary approaches that include plants and seemingly promote longevity and health span? I mean, yes, I I see what you're saying. And I think that I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize anyone for eating a certain way. It's a personal choice. I just want to offer this with the option and the idea that I think most people would probably feel even better. You know, I would love for Rich Roll to do that experiment, you know, with carnivore and be like, that would be amazing. I mean, that would be amazing. (laughs) Like, and maybe, you know, I think there would be a lot of confirmation bias and a lot of nocebo going on there because of where he's coming from. But, you know, I would love for like a non-biased individual to do both experiments. And that, that was one of the things that I talked about on that podcast with Rich it was on the minimalists, you know, like, Hey, people can decide for themselves, you know, um, maybe someone has real ethical concerns about eating animals. We didn't even talk about the ethics. And I think there's a very clear, you know, notion that eating animals is not bad for the environment. When you consider the carbon negative aspects of, um, grazing agriculture. Um, but maybe someone, you know, for whatever reason, if somebody doesn't want to eat animals and they're healthy and they're feeling good, like, who am I to tell them how to eat? Um, I do think though, that if someone like Rich Roll tried 
a more animal-based diet, I bet they would feel even better. And that's just the option that I want to put out there for people. Last note on the fruit, though, I would love if you ever find a study showing like a controlled study showing fruit, fructose from fruit and whole fruit form having a negative effect. I would love to see that because I have not found anything to support that. I mean, have you seen people just do ingestion of fruit? I mean, I've seen it, you know, I've seen it personally, like with my teeth, you know, I was a raw vegan and I had tons of calories. Like you see it. I mean, fruitarians look horrible, you know, <laughs> like that could be nutrient deficiencies, but I think you see it in practice. I don't know if I've ever seen a controlled study about it. I don't think anybody's ever done the study, you know, where they give somebody an apple, you know, and they look to see, you know, what their inflammatory markers are, things like that. But um, it would be an interesting study, but I just, I mean, just sort of philosophically, theoretically, I don't see the benefit to it. Well, I guess it would be kind of like, to make a comparison to carnivore, it's like we take fruit, we take fructose, this isolated form of carbohydrate, just using that, seeing how it affects the body and extrapolating conclusions from that. I would say that would be sort of similar to if we had meat and we extracted amino acid protein from it and we did all this studies on this amino acid and how it affects the human body. And then we drew conclusions from that when it's, we're not I mean, that would be, I think that we're doing a disservice because we need to take in protein in the context of, you know, the whole, the whole meat, not just an isolated amino acid. I think you could extend the same logic to isolating fructose from, from fruit. Yes, I think you're right. I will say that if you, you, I mean, the experiment I think has been done. I mean, you can look at continuous glucose monitors. You can look at CGMs from people eating fruit. Like the response is not good, you know, like the glucose monitors, I mean, we see, they see such a different response to different foods. So I don't, I don't even think we can make that conclusion because people seem to react all over the board with different blood sugar and insulin responses to, to different foods. Yeah. But I think, I mean, that would be the experiment, you know, take 20 people with CGMs and give them all four bananas and see what happens. Like, it's not going to be good. I mean, it's not going to be zero. Like I know for me, when I went from doing a high, like a very, very low carb. And I know there are a lot of factors, but when I went from going a a very, very low carb, arguably ketogenic diet, I always had high blood sugar. And I know that's a whole tangent. (laughs) Um, When I integrated more fruit, went leaner, higher carb, my blood sugar massively improved and went like lower. I don't know. I think it's very individual and depends on so many factors. Yes and no. I would say that if, I mean, when people say that they had poor blood sugar control on a low carbohydrate diet, the first thing I think of is inadequate sodium consumption. You know, I mean, you can absolutely cause your body to spike cortisol if you're not including enough sodium. Like there is naturesis of fasting and on a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet, you're going to waste more salt. And so I think that in the majority of cases like yours, my suspicion is that you were not consuming enough sodium. And because of that, your body was overproducing cortisol. And as you know, cortisol is a glucocorticoid, and that's going to change the way your body regulates. You know, I think it was a phenomenon of inadequate sodium. So if you correct the sodium equation in a ketogenic diet, and you give someone adequate sodium, 
the cortisol doesn't raise at all. And I actually put something on my Instagram about that today. And I've talked about that at length, like the idea that ketogenic diets spike stress hormones, cortisol, epinephrine, it's just false. Uh, that, that only happens when you restrict sodium on those diets. And I think a lot of people don't get enough sodium. And for whatever reason, our physiology is such that we lose more sodium on a ketogenic diet. So if we don't get enough sodium, you're going to overproduce cortisol. And that would be my suspicion. And without knowing the rest of your story, I can't understand it totally, but that would be my suspicion about that. I don't think I was sodium restricted when I was doing the rotisserie chickens from the mm. market. Still, no, you still <laughs> might not have been getting enough sodium. I think you might not have. I mean, you'd be surprised. Like, I think most people need about five grams of sodium a day um, which is equivalent to about 10 to 12 grams of salt in a day. You know, there's a lot of sodium loss when you're transitioning to ketogenesis, especially in the beginning. My current thoughts about high blood sugar on, you know, diets devoid of carbs is that it does often involve cortisol or some sort of an official quote, insulin resistance, because the body is, you know, maintaining, trying to maintain blood sugar. The only reason you would become insulin resistant or have high cortisol on a ketogenic diet is inadequate sodium. I mean, that's, that's the only physio, that's the only physiologic reason that I'm aware of. Like your, your cortisol should not be high. The other thing is that if you're doing, you know, if you're doing a ketogenic diet, that's primarily proteinaceous, like you, you know, if you're doing a keto, if you're doing it without enough fat, like you're going to have more gluconeogenesis, in which case your blood sugar is going to be higher. So if you're do, I mean, essentially if you're doing a carnivore diet with just chicken, that's a great way to feel horrible because you're not getting enough fat and that's going to make a lot of work for your body. You have to do a lot of gluconeogenesis. Yes, your blood sugar is going to be higher, but that's because the fat to protein macro is not ideal. And this is just anecdotal, but when I did it with chicken, that this was the high, oh yeah, the high coconut oil yeah. experiment. So it's, there was a lot of fat. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I bet it was the salt then. I bet if you repeated that with salt, with more salt, it would you might be a different result because that's very unusual physiology and you kind of have to dig into it, you know? That was something I was going to ask you. What do you think about the idea of hacking the the carnivore diet um, with like lean meat? Okay, because I know genetically we see that some people speak about genetics and longevity and things like that. We see genetically that it seems some people are more predisposed to quote running better or having more beneficial responses to certain types of fat, saturated versus unsaturated. No. I know, I know. I disagree with that. It's genetics. Well, saturated versus unsaturated versus monounsaturated, um, polyunsaturated. I could go on a whole tangent about polyunsaturated. What do you think about the idea of lean meats with like MCT oil to sustain a ketogenic state? So you'd be getting, you know, the protein, but then you'd be supporting ketogenesis and your fat metabolism with MCT oil. And then avoiding, and I don't think saturated fat is bad, but avoiding the whole saturated fat, you know, argument. And I, I was wondering no. this, and then I was asking p- people in my Facebook group for questions for you as well. And somebody else wanted to know the same thing. So it's like, okay, it's not just me. <laughs> yeah. So saturated fat has been incorrectly vilified and maligned. There's, there's really no evidence that saturated fat is bad for humans. And we don't really have time to get into the arguments around the lipid hypothesis. And yes, if you increase saturated fat, your LDL will go up. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I would argue in many cases that's been associated with longevity and it's a good thing. I did a podcast on my podcast last week with Dave Feldman, where we did a deep dive into LDL. So many people 
uh, malign saturated fat from the perspective of raising LDL. And I think that is completely wrong. And if you understand the lipidology around that, you'll see that that is not the case. There's no evidence that saturated fat, if you look at across the epidemiology, even though we know that's confounded, there's no consistent evidence that saturated fat is bad for humans or associated with adverse cardiovascular events. The epidemiology is very mixed. I really don't like the idea. I get asked that question a lot. What about MCT oil? I'm not a fan. I think people should be eating oils from animals and eating natural sources of fat. I'd rather have people eat tallow because of the fat-soluble minerals and vitamins that are in the animal fat. When you have MCT oil, it's a processed oil. It's going to be oxidized. I mean, it's a saturated fat, so it can't be highly oxidized, but it's going to be much more oxidized than it would normally be. Most MCT oils are hexane extracted. They're going to have residues of industrial petroleum or organic-based solvents in them. They're not pure. They're not good things for humans to take. I don't think there's a benefit to MCT oil. You can achieve a ketogenic state on a carnivore diet by adjusting your fat to protein macros quite easily. You just make sure that your fat is a larger component of your diet. And I would argue a much more evolutionarily consistent source of fat is going to be actual animal fat and tallow, things like this, rather than MCT oil. I think that we get overly obsessed with pushing ketone numbers. And you can see totally robust ketone numbers if you just change the protein to fat macro. I don't think there's a clear benefit to MCT oil. And I think that most of the MCT oils are extremely low quality. People might say, well, what if I get the best quality MCT oil? And I say, well, it doesn't exist. Like that's a synthetic oil. It doesn't exist in nature. You had to pull those C8, C9s out of a coconut oil. How did you do that? And then you stored it in a plastic jar. And, you know, I don't care if it's bulletproof and, you know, XCT oil or something, it's not going to be as beneficial to you. It's not going to have any fat soluble vitamins in it like animal fat would. And we know those are essential for humans. Don't chase the ketones with like, you know, an MCT oil. Like the fat from an animal is going to make ketones just fine. I think it's very important to not overconsume protein on these types of diets and to think about, you know, the protein to fat macros. Agreed. I could talk to you about all of this and so many more topics for hours. And I really want to, but, um, would you like to, cause I want to leave listeners with something very practical. If they are interested in this whole carnivore diet, um, could you just like quickly summarize if somebody is interested in starting the carnivore diet, can anybody do it? What you would recommend them doing, how long they should give it? I think, yeah, I think anyone can do it. People always ask me, like, I have this medical condition or that medical condition. I mean, obviously I can't speak for everyone and their medications and things like that, but I think everyone can do this. I believe quite strongly that this is the way that humans are programmed to eat. In the beginning of the talk, I asked the question or I sort of mentioned to listeners that I was always been that I've always been interested in this idea, you know, is there one diet for humans? And though I don't think there's one diet for all humans, I think that from an evolutionary perspective, the carnivore diet is the closest thing to like our most basic programming. I think it's pretty clear that among individuals, there's a differential tolerance to plants. Some people don't tolerate any plants and they feel best when they eat zero. Some people can tolerate some plants. I'm not sure as we talked about in detail on this podcast. I'm not convinced that those plants really give people a whole lot of nutritional benefit, but if they bring value to their life and those people are not feeling like those plants are detracting from their life or they're not feeling like there are clear areas of their life that they want to optimize, then they can probably leave those plants in their diet. Again, I feel like humans are facultative carnivores, meaning we probably have eaten plants throughout our existence as humans 
for 3 million years, but I believe that they're just survival food. But it's okay to eat survival food from time to time. Our ancestors would have. I just don't want people to imagine or, you know, my suggestion would be that it's not the optimal food for humans, but that's okay. But for people that are super sick, I think that there's a real utility in doing a full carnivore diet. And this is no plant products at all, not even coffee, you know, and people just shut off the podcast right there when I said no coffee. But I think that there are there are things in coffee which can be bad for people too. And so people can do all sorts of variations. They can cut out some plants, all plants. You know, you can kind of see a spectrum from like paleo to autoimmune paleo to, you know, varying degrees of cutting things out and out and out. But I think there's a real value in having people understand what it's like to eat less and less plants and see how they feel. And I think that for people that are sick and are not optimized, if they're not sleeping, if the libido isn't where they want it to be, if the energy isn't where they want it to be, if the body composition isn't where they want it to be, if they have autoimmune disease, this idea of eliminating plant foods, I would say for 30 to 60 days is a very powerful first intervention. And I think during that 30 to 60 days, people can really learn how they feel psychologically, the benefits are incredible psychologically, how they feel physically, how they feel emotionally without plants in their diet. And I think a lot of people are finding that chronic inflammation goes away, GI conditions go away, previously chronic long-term recalcitrant skin conditions go away. You know, like I said, it doesn't work magically for everyone, but the results are pretty striking. And oftentimes there, or sometimes there may be other things which confounded people can have other issues, heavy metal toxicity, underlying infections in the gut dysbiosis. But as far as a first intervention, I think it's really powerful and can help a lot of people to do a nose to tail carnivore diet. Now, we didn't really get into like the granular details of how to do that. I would direct people to like my Instagram and my YouTube channel for that, or they can reach out to me directly. But um, you know, the idea is that you want to eat from like every compartment of the animal. You want to eat some muscle meat. Like we were just talking about, I think it's important to balance the muscle meat with the fat and get those macros proper. I think a lot of people end up eating too much protein and don't feel great. I think people need to realize they're going to have an adaptation period. And if they've never done a fat adapted diet or they've never done a ketogenic diet, there's going to be two to three weeks where your metabolism changes over and you have to get through that. People may have adaptations in their gut. They may have loose stool, but eventually it normalizes. But once you get adapted, there's like this carnivore adaptation phase, you know, at least 30 days, probably better 60 days, you know, eating muscle meat, eating animal fat from good sources, eating organ meats, eating connective tissue, having a good source of omega-3s, having a source of iodine and having a source of calcium, which is usually either bone meal or egg, eggshells, things like that. Um, then, then you get to like, you know, a pretty full diet that's very sustainable and, a lot of people have to kind of wrap their head around, you know, the differences and variety. But I think most people, once they kind of get used to it, are just fine with it. And the foods are obviously very palatable and enjoyable. I mean, who doesn't like steak, you know, or like, I mean, I think that animal foods are very enjoyable, eggs and steak and um, animal fats, incredibly uh, rewarding for people, but it, it can be a very powerful intervention for people who are not where they want to be or who are curious how they would feel without plants in their diet. And that's what I would say people should kind of start with and think about. Thank you so much. And in the show notes for listeners, we'll put links to everything that Dr. Saladino just talked about so that you can definitely, if you're interested, you can find out more. Thank you so, so much, Paul. This has been absolutely amazing. And like I said, I've been fascinated with the carnivore diet and the concept of plant toxins for years, arguably a decade. And I'm so happy that now it's finally being talked about. And I'm so happy we have people like you who can give us such a 
you know, a scientific perspective and you're coming from the medical field because I think that is so needed because I think that this diet can benefit so many people and we need, it needs credibility just because of the, the, the current zeitgeist, what's been, what we've seen so far. So I really thank you for everything that you're doing. I do have one final question that I ask all guests on this podcast. And it is just because I realized how important mindset is for health and wellness and longevity and everything. So I wanted to ask you, what are you most grateful for? Oh man, I think about this all the time right now. I think I'm just grateful to be at a healthy planet in my life. You know, I'm feeling like I'm the healthiest I've ever been. And I'm grateful to have something that I get to do every day. That's very meaningful. You know, I'm I'm incredibly blessed right now. I'm in an incredibly awesome position to get to help people and share an idea that's, you know, being developed and is interesting and people are finding a lot of benefit from. So it's a, it's a fantastic position to be in and it's wonderful to be able to do it from a position of health that, you know, my journey, my journey has been pretty similar to yours, you know, like we've been looking for health and it, it's really, it's really, you know, a blessing to be able to get to a place where we can do this from a, you know, when it's, it's a blessing to be able to get to a place where we can, you know, operate in good health, you know, with clarity and a good mood and emotional resilience. And it's, it's just a nice place to be, you know, it's, it's great to be somewhere doing something meaningful and being able to enjoy life physically and mentally, um, with, with, you know, it's kind of, you know, at least in terms of my experience, the most optimal health that I've experienced in my life. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being here. It honestly means the world. I was, I'm was i so happy that I got to talk to you. And I'm sure listeners benefited so much from our conversation. How can they best follow your work? Yeah, I think that the best place is my website, which is paulsaladinomd.com. My last name has salad in it. It's the greatest <laughs> irony. So it's S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O. But it also has the beginning of dinosaur in it. So... Oh my goodness. Look at you. You're an omnivore, right? No, no. I, <laughs> no. Facultative carnivore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, PaulSaladinoMD.com. There's a link to my newsletter, which uh, is coming out soon. It's going to have lots of good stuff. So people can go and sign up for my newsletter. I've got my own podcast, which I'll have to have you on soon. And we can talk about your ongoing experiences with carnivore diet or your experiments. It's fundamental health with Paul Saladino MD it's on iTunes and all of the all of the the platforms I've got a YouTube channel which is Paul Saladino MD and I'm on a couple of social media spots at Instagram Paul Saladino MD and uh, Twitter MD Saladino so people can reach me through all those places Perfect. So for listeners, I will put all of that in the show notes. The show notes will be at melanieavalon.com/carnivore. So definitely check that out. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. This has been amazing. I was waiting for it so long and it lived up to everything and I knew I wouldn't get to everything and we did it, but we, I think we got, I think we tackled a lot of really good, good topics. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. We got to a ton of stuff. We did. I could still talk for like 10 hours with you, but next time part two, part two. (laughs) Thank you so much. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. 
feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.